Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, I was driving around the other day and Tori Amos's Jackie's Strength came on my iPod when I had it set to shuffle. I was on my way home munching some french fries and Jackie's Strength came on. Not a great song. But one line has stuck with me ever since I first heard it. Feeling old by 21. Feeling old by 21. I remember turning 21. I just gotten run over by an ex-girlfriend. We shall call her Dallas and was starting to glue my life back together. Worked a long, hot summer in a warehouse, enrolled in school, quit the warehouse gig, and then got a job at, at a mall. And things were going well. They were really busy at the time, as I recall. It was exhausting. Feeling old by 21. But they were fun times, too. That's good. But, as exes tend to do, Dallas came back. Tried to, anyway. Had an eerie feeling that entire week. Does that make sense? Being watched. Observed. It felt like something was going to happen. And it was going to happen soon. Dallas figured out where I worked. I won't say stalked. And met me in the parking lot after work. October the 21st, 2001. My 21st birthday. Hadn't seen her in a long time. Months actually. And before you even know what happened, you're sitting in a booth at Bennigan's getting loaded on whatever trashy liquor they serve there because that was somehow a lot more appealing than the conversation that you're having. In that moment, I just remember feeling really tired. You know? Feeling old by 21. It's human nature to want to feel better about things. I mean, given enough time, psychologists say that you can bury just about anything that you have. If mental baggage is dragging you down, wait a while. Sooner or later, it's going to go away. But, like... I think the process of that can be kind of exhausting. You know, the more bullshit that you've got to bag up and throw away, I don't know. It's like it takes a toll on you or something. It, anyway. So, in that moment, Looking across the table at her at Bennigan's, 
It all just felt heavy. Feeling old by 21. And it's a little weird how you can spend so much time thinking that you want something. You know? I mean, I missed her all summer, you know? And what I came to realize after a while was I missed her life, you know? Just being able to ask her how her day went. Small things like that. But when you finally get it, it's like that that groggy sensation you have when you wake up after just four hours of sleep. <clears throat> uh, it's, it's tough to describe. Now, Jackie's Strength isn't a great song, you know? Tori Amos is a good singer, don't get me wrong, but she sometimes lacks something as a writer. And in the case of Jackie's Strength, there's really no consistent point of view. She zips from first person to third person to second person to Jackie's point of view, back to second person, back to first, just blah, 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 blah. Feeling old by 21. But as a performer, she makes up whatever she lacks as a writer. In this song's case, Jackie's strength, she has this sort of drawn, exhausted quality to her voice. And so when she sings Feeling Old by 21, you feel the weight of every single one of those years. Even if it makes no fucking sense whatsoever because Jackie had a pretty charmed life especially in her form in her formative years but somehow Tori Amos makes you feel more for this hoity-toity rich little princess in her college years than honestly you probably should anyway I was smashed I mean especially back then I really couldn't hold my liquor all that well, so I couldn't drive home from Bennigan's. Or shouldn't, anyway. So Dallas dra drove me back to the apartment that I shared with my brother. On paper, we shared it, but not in actual fact, because he had his own place and his own life, and even then, it... It didn't much include me. The door was really hard to unlock, as I recall, and it shouldn't have been, but the key was really slippery. Or I was drunk and it was dark. Or maybe I was just losing my edge. Feeling old by 21. We finally forced our way into the apartment and I was... Honestly, I was just too drunk and too sleepy to get undressed, and to be honest with you, I wasn't completely sure what the protocol was about stripping down to my grippies in front of an ex-girlfriend. I mean, what the fuck are you supposed to do there, you know? Anyway. Dallas stripped me down to my grippies, tucked me in, kissed me goodnight, let herself out, locked the door behind her, at which time I made a drunken mental note to finally get her apartment key from her. 
eventually. And I wondered if all of this was what Tori Amos meant. Feeling old by 21. Makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. That's like the official job description, right? But what I've been doing for the past, ah, shit, at this point, I'm very close to a year by now, is I've just been going through a bunch of different six or sometimes longer, sometimes fewer episode miniseries dedicated to a particular topic, theme, character, idea, concept, B. Arthur, just whatever else. And it's been a whole lot of fun, don't get me wrong. And so that is indeed what I'm doing right now, in fact. Working my way through a little, this is actually more of a mini-series than a mega-series. This is a three-part series entitled Brother Fights Brother. Basically, we draw closer, ever closer, to the theatrical release of Captain America Civil War and partly it's to tie in with the release of that film and partly it's because I just friggin love Civil War as a concept and as a story I wanted to spend some time just kind of shooting the bull about some Civil War stuff that I tend to enjoy and so last week which is to say episode number 143 I was joined by no less than Mr. Michael Bailey himself so that we could talk about, first, the New Avengers Illuminati uh, one-shot special, and then the main Civil War miniseries wherein we were somewhat interrupted by a huge crack of thunder. And this week, I'm going to be once again joined by Mr. Michael Bailey so that we can talk about, first, Ms. Marvel, numbers six through eight. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome the host and founder of Views from the Long Box, the co-host and co-founder of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, and the co-host and co-founder of too many other podcasts for me to ever hope to mention in a single day, Mr. Michael Bailey. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? You know, I don't know if we made the joke last time, but it is kind of ironic that in a, in a comic book series, we're right in the middle of it, there's a giant crack of thunder. 
and uh, Thor shows up, then in the middle of our talking about said comic book <laughs> series, there's a giant crack of thunder. Uh, all I'm saying is just watch the news because uh, <laughs> some, some weird crap might be happening in your area soon. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. Well, and maybe it's a bit morbid, but in fact, just yesterday, you know what? Some tragic stuff happened yesterday, So, mm-hmm. and some of which actually was in my city. But anyway, no, we maybe should just bypass that and just act like nothing happened so wow what a way to take it down so but now we're going to talk about gun control (laughs) and after that we're going to talk about specific politics and then after that we're going to wrap the whole thing up with a long and involved discussion about religion (laughs) (laughs) don't forget abortion we got to throw abortion in there (laughs) and and the great pumpkin all the things you just don't talk about with people so oh boy wow well you know what on the other hand what I'll say is that if ever there was a time when we could kind of half-ass in a retarded way justify bending the rules about, you know, what you do and do not talk about with people, there's mm-hmm. a very strong argument that this is kind of the time to do it because, let's face it, as you and I somewhat touched upon last week, there is a little bit of a political metaphor, which is to say <laughs> a lot of a political metaphor behind the entire Civil War concept and – you know, and look, you know, whatever. I mean, I think you and I both kind of said our piece about that last week. I don't want to drag you into something now. I'm just trying to make you feel a little bit better. That's all. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's amazing when, when I was reading the uh, the Ms. Marvel books, especially. I, I was thinking, wow, there are so many things we could draw into this conversation. Uh, so many things going on right now. I mean, almost 10 years after this story comes out, you know, it still has kind of a resonance in, in terms of what it's talking about. But the great thing is, is that you can talk about superhero registration and just stick with that and still talk about other things without actually having to specifically mention them. And people can infer whatever they want to infer. Mm. And that's actually kind of more fun because then you're letting the audience make their make up their mind instead of telling them how to feel about something. I agree. And, you know, to be honest with you, Civil War is one of the few occasions when comics have really tried to tackle, shall we say, relevant and topical subject matter in a way that wasn't completely fucking insensitive and, if anything, a detriment to the cause. You know, I mean, it's just you look back on the history of. Uh, of comics with respect to um, things like racial integration or, uh, you know, relations between the sexes, you know, things like that. And it's weird how I really want to say that their hearts are in the right place, but God bless them. They found the most offensive way to talk about things that they possibly could have. And like, I think a good example of what I'm talking about here is that famous Lois Lane issue, I Am Curious Black, <laughs> where basically yeah. Lois is putting on blackface to sort of hang around with the urban crowd. And wow, guys, that that just... She, yeah. she gives him a blood transfusion at the end of the story, and that proves that underneath it all, we're all the same. <laughs> yeah. And like I say, I mean... I want to believe that their hearts are in the right place, but my goodness, there's sometimes something that really is lacking from the execution and all of that. It, it's the follow through just, it's just not there in some cases, but you know, and it's, it, it's kind of funny. I always used to joke that, you know, they're always 10 years late to the party. And when they finally get there, they find the, you know, 
offensive way of doing things. It kind of makes me glad that comics weren't around back when slavery was being abolished because <laughs> wow, I shudder to think what might have gone wrong. You know, we may have had to fight a second civil war just because <laughs> of that, you know? So, well, and I guess to tie it all back in with the civil war that we're talking about today, at least in this segment, um, Bailey and I, what we agreed upon is when we were first kind of hatching and planning and scheming and plotting these episodes, there's no possible way to talk about every single comic book that came out that had Civil War printed somewhere on the cover and do all that stuff any degree of justice, right? Mm -hmm. And so what he and I agreed upon was probably the smarter way to do stuff was just talk about the comics that we like, but don't try to be comprehensive with it. You know, in terms of discussing all the comics, just talk about all the comics that we enjoy. That's all. And so, at least in the first segment, what we're going to be talking about is Miss Marvel numbers six, seven, and eight. Now, ages and ages and ages ago, I did the Women in Comics mega series. You know, speaking of sensitivity, I did the the Women in Comics uh, mega series, wherein I talked about Ms. Marvel numbers one through five. And the reason I artificially cut it off at number five was because I always knew I was going to come back to talk about six, seven, and eight and whatever I ended up doing for Civil War. So for those of you who were ever curious, well, there's your peek behind the, per- the curtain there. So um, now, <clears throat> as as it goes for... Ms. Marvel, number uh, number six. Writer is Brian Reed. Penciler is Robert De La Tour. Inker is, how do you pronounce this dude's name? Is it is it John Sabal? I I always said Sabal. Sabal, okay. Good enough for me. Professor Michael Bailey has spoken. Colorist, Chris Sotomayor. Letterer is Dave Sharp. Editor is Andy Schmidt. And, of course, editor-in-chief, Joe Casada. The guy that mopped up last night, Bob Jones. They, they sure got enough credits on this thing. <laughs> yes, they do. And in fact, actually, there's something else I could have mentioned. The cover artist is actually Dave, uh, David Mack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you'd asked me, David Mack doing the covers for Ms. Marvel, what that might look like, I got to tell you, it. I, I would have guessed it wouldn't have turned out as well as it actually did. So... I mean, just to look at it, nothing about this screams David Mack. No, not at all. Uh, outside of maybe the coloring on her skin mm-hmm. uh, uh, is a little Mackish, but you know, he's kind of a he's kind of I don't want to call him an odd duck uh, as like a pejorative, but you know, he he tends to do kind of strange things with his art, anyways. And you know, the textured quality of the of the flag was such a great touch. I mean, it almost it almost makes me want to kind of like cut that out, kind of Photoshop the six out of that and just make it a, a, a desktop wallpaper because uh, it's uh, it's just that good of a piece of art. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, the fact is, people these days can be, I'll just say it, this is just my opinion, you know, I don't associate Bailey with something that I'm saying. People are way too fucking sensitive these days about... I don't want to say comic book covers, but basically the way that women are depicted in comics. And number one, I mean, guys, I know that the that the form has really grown and evolved over the decades. But end of the day, 
this was a form created by men for men. And it's something that's always idealized the human form. And so the fact that this cover features Ms. Marvel's mammalian protuberances and such prominence, I mean, this does not bother me. I could see this becoming a little bit of a controversial cover, though, were it released today. So I don't know if you want to touch what I just said. I, 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 I'm not exactly sure I, I agree the created by men for men. I think they were created by men for kids. And it just happened that at some point in the whole evolution of, you know, people who read comics, it became more of a boys thing. But, yeah, you know, there, there was like a 44% female readership in, in the 40s for comics. So, uh, but... At the same time, you know, when I saw this cover, I did not think, oh, they're focusing on boobs. And I think the reason for that is because Mac draws a very proportioned woman. It's not like she is in a seductive position. She's, you know, she's just kind of standing there with her hands on her hips, you know, one hip cocked to the side. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just nothing about this strikes me as we're trying to sell this with sex. In fact, the thing that actually takes most of my attention is, oddly enough, the fact that half the cover is yellow with white text on it. Yeah, it's actually that that color, that yellow color. That's what I don't like. uh, And I think that's kind of one of the, you know, one of the things, you know, when people talk about crossovers and things comic book companies do, very rarely do people talk about trade dress uh, and all that. And thought goes into that. You know, they put out the Civil War crossovers with the half cover being a solid cover with white writing for a reason. And that's because when you walk into the comic shop and you look at the racks and racks on racks on racks uh, (laughs) from a song, um, you know, you really want to draw the eye away, you know, or draw the eye and make, you know, your book stand out from all the other, uh, all the other covers on the stands. And in 2006, there's a lot of books on the stands Mm -hmm. and, to be fair, a lot of their covers kind of all blend together in this homogenous, you know, like, holy crap, it's all like one image. So nothing really stands out. Whereas with Civil War, unlike Infinite Crisis even, Civil War, you walk into the comic shop, you look on the stands, and every Civil War book, uh, you know, if the comic shop's smart, they've uh, merchandised their comics to have all of the Civil War stuff together. That's if you're smart, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... If you're just putting these things alphabetical order, you can go down the line and every time you pass a Civil War cover, you're going to stop because there's something different about that cover. Uh, yellow, unfortunately, is the color of panic. So so I don't know if it's the right color to go with, but <laughs> it, it actually would draw my eye more than the fact that we got like a half shot, a mid shot of Ms. Marvel and there's nothing salacious about it. You know, I would say that there is more... Uh, something could be said more for the Ms. Marvel on, like, the title page, uh, which is just taken from the first issue, 
But still, I mean, she's kind of like stacked like the Library of Congress with hips that lie and they're hoping to feel you, boy. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 I mean, if they put that on the cover every time, I can see there might be a problem. But with this one, I'm just like, eh, it's okay. She's proportioned. I don't like the yellow. That's really my main problem with the cover. Well, and I don't want to get all dress on you or anything, but what color is her outfit on the cover there? Is that um, supposed to be black in, in your view? or, or is this I think it's supposed to be black, but it's... <sighs> the only thing I could say is maybe they're shining a light on her, so the black, which is kind of maybe like a leathery black, is actually reflecting that. Mm. So it comes off as shiny. Well, I just... I, I wondered about this because I always thought that this was supposed to be black, and like you say, she's standing in a spotlight or something. And... Come to find out, there are people out there who have interpreted this to be that she's wearing a sort of shiny, metallic-y, reflective-y type of, um, type of outfit, just, I guess, for variation or something. Because she wears, to my memory, she doesn't wear anything like this in any of the three issues that, that we're covering today. And it just kind of made me wonder, and good golly, we've talked a lot about this cover <laughs> for it being so simple. But, well, anyway, uh, I don't know. Uh, but it does kind of actually make you wonder, you know, like what texture are we supposed to infer for all of these, for all of these comic book characters? I saw this one cosplayer in. No, I guess it was here. I guess it was here in Houston for uh, Wizard, uh, for not Wizard World, for um, uh, Comic Palooza. And I happened to be dressed as Waldo at the time because I'm a ginger and I wear glasses seemed logical so and this ms marvel cosplayer you know totally gorgeous woman actually wanted to have her picture taken with me and she was wearing an outfit and if you're so inclined you can probably look for it on my facebook you know you guys listening if you're interested you can probably look for it on facebook i want to say it was taken in 2013 and her outfit looks and I'm, and I don't mean like just the layout of it and the design of it. I mean even what I am. I, cause I didn't touch her, but I, I, I would assume the texture of her costume. That's pretty much Miss Marvel's outfit, the way I always saw it in my head. Like if you were to turn this into a live action type of thing, like translate it literally into real life, this is mm-hmm. more or less what you'd come up with. And the uh, tremendous attention to detail. She had the, the mask exactly right. The only thing that was off, oddly enough, I believe, was her hair. It, she had this more sort of uh, chestnut color, whereas Ms. Marvel, I think, is just hardcore blonde. And other than that, you know, it was this – she looked like Ms. Marvel stepped off the page. And so and – and it was just this not exactly – I, I don't want to say pleather, but that's really the closest that I can think of. As far as, you know, the texture of what, or at least, again, I didn't touch her, so I don't know, but what I, because last thing I, I, I just, no, I'm not going to touch people, no. So, but the, I guess, the way it, the way I assume it would have felt had I touched it based upon the way it looks, about like pleather, I guess. So, I don't know. Whatever you want to say there is, that's cool. I would assume the same, same thing, personally. I, I just... You know, with with how they design these costumes in the live action now, it's it's kind of a leathery type, you know, 
base anyways. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know if they would actually go with this specific costume for the movie. Um, I assume they would go for more of what she's wearing now uh, with that kind of full body type outfit, which actually I, I like quite a bit. I like that costume. Uh, it's, it's very eye catching, uh, but uh, I, you know, I, the, the thing I will say about these three issues just right off the, right from the jump is I keep forgetting what a great job Brian Reed did with this book. Oh yeah. It was like the one book that, you know, Shag kept putting it, like saying, you need to read this, you need to read this. And I finally sat down and read it. And I'm like, holy crap, there is nothing about this book that I don't like. And like getting back into it, I'm like, yeah, he really had a great take on this character. And, it, you know, and, and, and the artwork is just amazing. And just like, you know, in general, everything about these issues I loved. Ditto. Just absolutely loved. I did as well. And uh, we can get more into that in just a sec, actually. But uh, for right now, the synopsis, this story is entitled Battle Lines. Synopsis is as follows. The Civil War has begun and superheroes are forced to make a choice. Register with the government or face incarceration. Ms. Marvel has chosen the former. Ms. Marvel leads a S.H.I.E.L.D. team to arrest unregistered superhero The Prowler, also known as Hobie, Hobie or Hobby, one of the two, Brown. Their mission is a success, and the team returns to base. Next morning, Simon Williams visits Carol at her apartment, reminding her of the debriefing with Iron Man. They fly to Stark Tower and re-meet Julia Carpenter, now operating under the identity Arachne. How the hell do I pronounce that? Arachne. Arachne? Arachne? Nu? Nai? Arcana? Arcana. Hmm. It could be. It's either Arachna or Arcana, but I would go for more Arachna. Okay, Arachna. Fine. Good enough for me. And re meet Julia Carpenter, now operating under the identity Arachna. In the debriefing, Iron Man assigns their new missions. Arachna will go after Max Coleridge, aka The Shroud while Ms. Marvel and Wonder Man will search for the teenage superhero, Aranya. Before Ms. Marvel leaves for her mission, Iron Man asks her about Captain America's whereabouts, and she claims she doesn't know. Ms. Marvel then remembers her earlier conversation with Captain America, which I talked about, or started talking about, in my last episode about Ms. Marvel, so flip back to that for those interested. He wanted her support with his anti-registration movement, but Carol had decided to register, claiming she was doing her duty as an American citizen. Cap says that she's obeying an an unjust law that disregards civil liberties, but Carol replies that people are afraid, and the uh, the Superhuman Registration Act will make them feel safer. I'm not so sure about that personally, but anyway, meanwhile at Rikers Island, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent interrogates Hobie Brown, who about who informed him of S.H.I.E.L.D. presence in his neighborhood. The agent even threatens Hobie's wife with incarceration, and Hobie is forced to admit Arachna was his informant. So, we've got a rat in the house, gentlemen. Arachna visits the Shroud, which is to say her boyfriend, at his apartment. The Shroud advises her to remain at Iron Man's faction, lest her daughter uh, be in, uh, in danger at the same time that S.H.I.E.L.D. forces storm the penthouse. Although the Shroud claims Arachna was about to arrest him, Arachna chooses to help the Shroud escape. And in so doing, both of them become fugitives. Later, after an evening of patrolling, Carol and Simon 
which is to say Wonder Man, go to a fast food restaurant to have dinner. The same restaurant that Anya Corazon works at. A bunch of robbers attempt to attack the customers, but Carol and Simon neutralize them, just as Anya puts on her Arana outfit right in front of Carol and Simon. To be continued. So, Bailey, <clears throat> your thoughts? Um, I'm going to make a really tasteless joke here. Apparently, uh, according to one presidential candidate, they were looking for the person at the counter. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was terrible. I apologize no, for that. No, that's fine. <laughs> that, that, no, that's good. That's really good. I'm, that's staying in, dude. <laughs> uh, loved it. Loved everything about it because the great thing about most of the tie-ins to Civil War is that it talked it, – it had the chance to talk about what's going on without having to worry about telling the overall story. And, you know, we talked last time about, you know, my opinion that Mark Miller is not the lightest touch when it comes to writing no. uh, and he's not very subtle or at least by this point, he was really not all that subtle. But, you know, he he wasn't the one that I would have tapped to kind of explore the larger issues of what's going on in the Civil War. And that's where these tie-ins are so important and why they're actually very entertaining. Okay, they're a cash grab, but I'm a capitalist. Uh, I like people making money, and no one's putting a gun to my head. So, you know, if I want to buy all the... I'm not forced to buy all of the tie-in issues. No. Uh, and in many cases with Civil War, if you buy the tie-in issues, you're actually going to get a better read than the main story. And this is definitely an example of this. I love watching Carol kind of struggle with what's going on. She stands up to Captain America, Captain freaking America, and not in a defiant, I'm going to punch you in the face way, but your dad just basically came in and told you that he doesn't agree with what you're doing. And you're still telling him that you're going to go to, you know, LA and become a dancer or whatever. You know, it's just, it's just, that's a terrible comparison, but still (laughs) there's something about her looking at the personification of what America is and going, you're wrong. That is really powerful to me. And the artwork that, that kind of leads into something. Um, I definitely wanted to ask you about how how much do you buy her joining forces with the pro-registration movement, basically the uh, S.H.I.E.L.D.? Completely buy it because when coming out of House of M, where she lived a life where she was the hero, I think in the back of her mind, she doesn't want to jeopardize that. So she's going to side with this because it's kind of safe. And that's not saying that she's a weak person, but, you know, she's got her act together and this gives her a purpose, you know, it gives her her ideals. And let's let's remember, end of the day, I mean, I know Captain America's military, but so is so is Carol. Yeah. I mean, she she was part of the company line and she was presented with facts. She agreed with them. And so to toe that line that she feels needs to be um, needs to be perpetuated, she's going to she's going to side with the registration line. I totally bought her doing that. Well, yeah. And the, I guess the entire thrust of her character arc prior to the onset of Civil War was 
was Carol basically – I don't mean this in a, <clears throat> in a derogatory type of way, but she was looking for enfranchisement and, dare I say, acceptance. And it, it makes sense to me that she would be, at least for her own sake, pro-registration. But the reason that I ask is because I remember there being a little bit of backlash to these issues when Civil War was coming out, that there were there was a faction out there who, for whatever reason, they couldn't buy into the idea of Carol ever registering with, with the Superhuman Registration Program. And it just kind of made me wonder what comics they were reading, because this never once struck me as being out of character. But it, I just wanted to ask you that. No, now, I, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, that's always a safe idea. But the, the one of the other questions I had was, is this something that was dictated to the writers of this uh, of these tie-ins and these stories? Or were they able to decide for themselves, hey, my character is going to be pro-registration or no, my character is going to be on the outside? I mean, did we I mean, do we even know whose choice it was for uh, for these characters to either register or not register? I get the feeling, and I have no evidence of this, so keep that in mind. But I get the feeling that, you know, the brain trust of Marvel at this point, you know, Quesada, Buckley, Bendis, you know, uh, JMS, uh, who else would be in there? Uh, Mark Miller and all that. Like the, like the guys that were the big guns pretty much outlined who was going to be where. And they handed out the assignments accordingly. And for me, you know, putting my position of myself as being a writer working on a title where I am writing for a big company, I have my own ideas, I have my own perception of who this character is, and then the company hands me something like this, like, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, the book you're writing, she's on the side of the registration. That's where you're going. What I would do if I disagreed with that or what I would do just to make for a balanced story is I would put myself totally in the position of who that character is and why she's doing what she's doing. And like you said, she was looking for something to believe in. And this gave that to her because on paper to a certain personality type, it all makes sense. It really does. I mean, it's just like, okay, Hey, there was this huge tragedy and the public is calling for something to be done. Now you can either be on that or you can just, you know, you know, step aside and and be flattened because either way it's happening. So to her, in her mind, it makes perfect sense that, okay, if you have powers, you need to be trained because again, she's military. So there is a difference between, you know, John Q. Citizen running into a situation and trying to take care of it and somebody who's actually trained to take care of that situation running into taking care of it. I'm not saying that John Q. Citizen couldn't save the day, but if it happens too often, something bad's going to happen. So that's, that's issue one of Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. So. If if it if Reed did not come up with this, I will have to say that either way, he made the best of that situation. I agree. 
And the, I guess the conflict that, you know, she is very definitely pro-registration, but there's still this, this conflict that, you know what? Yeah, she, she, like you said, I mean, she was very respectful of, of Captain America, but she nevertheless stood her ground. There is this conflict in her about it. And she flat out lies to Tony about it. And Mm -hmm. the thing is, I mean, especially in this story, my reading of Tony is that he's not going to ask a question unless he already knows the answer. He didn't ask her that so that she could let him know what happened. He asked her so that she could have an opportunity to come clean because he already knew. And he may not have known, you know, A to B to C to D, everything that was said, but he knew the big picture. Captain America showed up at her apartment, words were exchanged, and he's still at large. So at the very least, she didn't arrest him. The fuck is going on here, you know? Yeah. So I don't, this, and you know, you mentioned a while ago, you know, tie-ins being more powerful even than the main story. I kind of put that down to the zero hour effect, you know, cause you and I came up in a time in comics when, you know what, there were, there were these huge storylines that sometimes had, some had more quality than others to be diplomatic. And a lot of times it was actually the tie-ins that really made those stories. And I don't think that's completely true of say, Armageddon 2001. I still mm-hmm. think, you know, yeah, there was a huge change that was made to that story, but I still think it's it's still a good story. But there's no argument, at least in my mind, that the tie-ins were so much more interesting. And especially with Zero Hour, I think you and I probably do agree on that one. Zero Hour, whatever Zero Hour was lacking as a story... The concept was gold, and a lot of really talented people made made hay out of that. And I can't help – I mean I don't want to apply that completely to Civil War just because, like I say, I really do enjoy the main series. And But you know, at the same time, there's really no arguing the quality of, uh, of all of these different tie-ins and whatnot. And I mean the more peripheral tie-ins. I think Amazing Spider-Man and Fantastic Four are – they're every bit as essential to this to the Civil War narrative as the main series itself. But you get stuff like Ms. Marvel that's a little bit more on the outside. Mm-hmm. And the this concept still has a lot of juice to it. And to me, that that's usually a good indication that the main story, even if it's not being executed especially well, the main concept still has a lot of disco potential to it and anyway that's just how i've always viewed it yeah no i'll 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 I'll, not for my own safety but just because i'm a person who can make up my own mind i'll agree with that so even though it's safer to agree with you when you know we're on your playground so to speak (laughs) very true yeah well um the the magnus ninjas that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) yeah well they uh, are a force to be reckoned with. And, um, oh, and now I have I have Lucy the puppy who wants to be petted right now. She just actually hopped up in my lap. So <laughs> uh, she's not exactly a lap dog, she, people. Uh, she cares not for what you were doing. 
she will be rubbed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and dude, you know what? I mean, you've got dogs. I mean, you know how it is. Sometimes, you know, what they want is what they want. And if you don't like it, well, tough toenails for you, you know? So Exactly. Um, but honestly, I mean, I would say that a good a good bit of this, uh, of the remainder of this issue, I'm not going to call it a write-off. But, I mean, you know, I, I would say that it's kind of front-loaded with character dynamics. And then after that, you know, what you're basically left with is a, not a prolonged action scene, but it's basically either exposition or action. And there's really, honestly, there's overall less to comment upon than there is in this in this latter half of the story than there is in the, in the first half. Um, that I, 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 I do affirm. So all of this is my way of saying, you know, I, do you have anything else that you want that you want to uh, hash through for number six, or do you want to, or or do you want to move on to number seven? Um, I um, I did appreciate the fact that you know we have a fast food franchise that is not treated like the devil. Carol really likes to eat here, so that kind of amused me because usually, usually, it, I, I think some writers kind of fall into a trap of wanting to have women not eat because they want to be perpetually skinny. She doesn't care. She's going to have a double chili chicken cow, a large order of potato hunks, and an extra large chocolate frozen moo juice. What the hell is a chicken cow? I really want to know what a chicken cow is. Well, what, this what, are is they, what are they doing there? This is the Marvel Universe, and they have these uh, humans who are mutants, and they have these special capabilities that other humans don't have. And the way I rationalize that in my mind is that that actually affects animals as well, so that you can actually have a chicken cow. And uh, okay. so <laughs> I'm making shit up. I have no idea. Them. They keep breeding them, and it, it, it's like it's it's like ground chicken. I don't know. I just I just like the fact that we're you know, Wonder Man and Ms. Marvel take care of the, the would-be uh, robbers who apparently watched Point Break uh, yes. before coming in here. And they take him out, and poor Arana is just like, why did I say Arcana? Why did I think there was a CH in there? Never mind. I uh, I take all of that back. Um, I was going to ask, were you mixing her up with the Krata? But I, I didn't want to... I, I was mixing her up with something else because I wasn't directly looking at the name. But I love the fact that she pops out ready to do something, and it's the end of the issue, and holy crap, she's face-to-face with Ms. Marvel and Wonder Man. I thought that was really great. I thought it was a, a solid way. Uh, it, it proves that while this was, you know written for the trade in mind it was very much written for the single issue format agreed and i appreciated that well and 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 you know what that's that's actually something else that <clears throat> i really don't know that brian reed ever really got as much props for that as i think he should have because there were a lot especially in this era of comics i would say that the majority of stories that were coming out probably were written for trades mm-hmm. and there were times when it was really obvious you know I would say as much as I enjoy the Brian Michael Bendis run on Daredevil, I hold that up even higher than I do the Frank Miller run on Daredevil. You really can't argue that he was shit. He wasn't even writing for the trade anymore. In some cases, he was writing for the fucking omnibus. Yeah. And (laughs) that is just 
I, like intellectually, I know that Brian Reed probably was doing the same thing. He was just, I, forgive me, better at it than Bendis was. Does that seem fair? Yes. That That's completely fair. All right. Well, uh, to move on to, uh, this is Captain Marvel. Captain, forgive me. Now I'm saying it. <laughs> Ms. Marvel, number seven. <clears throat> uh, same creative team. Title is Battle Lines Part 2. Anya sits on the rooftop of her apartment building in Brooklyn, where her father comes with a birthday cake to celebrate Anya's birthday a few days early. Suddenly, Ms. Marvel, Wonder Man, a character I usually find to be a total douchebag, and a group of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents arrive at the apartment and take the Corazon family under custody. <clears throat> I think I meant to type into custody there, but whatever. Gilberto is placed in a holding room at Stark Tower until Carol comes in, assuring him that his daughter is not under detention. In fact, Wonder Man is giving her the grand tour and allowing her to use their training facilities. Carol and Simon inform Anya and Gilberto that, um, that the SHRA has no age limit and Anya has to register. Otherwise, she's going to face jail time, a plot point I'm going to come back to in just a minute. Gilberto wants Anya to stop being Aranya so she can live a normal life, but Anya refuses and argues that she became Aranya to help people and to make a difference. For that, she agrees to register, but Carol says that as a minor, Anya will be allowed to keep living with her father. Meanwhile, Arachna and the Shroud continue their escape from S.H.I.E.L.D., being forced to steal clothes and a car. Upon hitting the road... The couple decide to flee to Canada, but not before Julia takes her daughter with them. Although Max is concerned that Julia's daughter will be under S.H.I.E.L.D. protection, he nonetheless agrees to save her. Which maybe wasn't the smartest decision he's made all year. Back at Stark Tower, Iron Man debriefs Carol and Simon that Arachna has gone rogue and is helping the Shroud in evading S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. And now they have to detain her. Anya wants to come along, but Car and Carol accepts, but only if Anya doesn't get involved in the action. Ms. Marvel and her team intercept Arachna and the Shroud's car. Arachna attempts to ram Ms. Marvel into a roadblock, but Ms. Marvel flips the car over. The Shroud is detained, but Arachna is nowhere to be seen. To be continued. So, Mike, you're up first. Uh... I, the main thing I liked about this issue is that Brian Reed was able to use his characters to spout a certain philosophy and not have it come off as being forced. Mm -hmm. You know, Arana makes this speech to her father about how, you know, she was going to do something, but, you know, she was now concerned that people would have gotten hurt you know, in whatever she was trying to do to stop the people robbing the chicken cow. And I like that because it shows that, okay, this is the mentality of this side of the equation. And it sets up beautifully something hap that happens in the next issue where, you know, when you're 16, sometimes you're really sure of what you believe in until you have to put it into practice. And then the world suddenly isn't all that black and white. And I, it's a good father-daughter moment, too, because this man obviously cares for his daughter. He's worried about her, but he also realizes that, you know, she is 16, 
She's got to be making decisions for herself. And, you know, she's obviously put some thought into this. So, and, and I do like the <clears> fact that he's like, I'm the one you have to deal with if she gets hurt. The uh, former, the artist formerly known as Spider-Woman uh, <laughs> and the Shroud scenes were really good, mainly because it's a, it's a good emotional beat to take especially when he says to go get her daughter. Though I will say, when I got to this point in the issue, I'm like, how is this going to go well for you? This is S.H.I.E.L.D. we're talking about. I'm sorry. This isn't like you're evading the cops. It's not even like you're evading, like, the BAU team on Criminal Minds or something. Right. You know, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s got their hands into everything. They know where you're going. And it's a good, solid little action piece here at the end. Uh and I will say artistically, the the this the art in the this issue was fantastic, and I liked the Dazzler World World Tour nineteen ninety three T shirt that just made me laugh, <laughs> uh, just because Dazzler is something of an embarrassment apparently. So, and you know, there's some comic moments like the guy who's in his underwear in the laundromat whose clothes get stolen, though. That dude must be huge, because if it's going to fit the shroud, this guy looks like he's built like a freaking Mack truck. Uh, you know, I'm just assuming that they're the same size and this isn't convenience. Um, also, props to uh, the artist formerly known as Spider-Woman for uh, managing to get changed in the front seat. Yeah, that's a mild that's... Olympic level event for those of you who've never had to do I have to do that fairly often for reasons I, I'll talk about when the statute of limitations is up. But suffice it to say, it's a trick. So, but no, it was a good solid middle chapter in this little storyline. We got some good action beats. You know, we, we've got, you know, the, the themes continuing to be explored through the characters. And it was just a fun, like I could I was tearing through these issues when I was rereading them. Right, Just and that's something else. That these issues, uh, like uh, all all Ms. Marvel issues, they, I mean, you can just cut through these things like butter. I mean, there is a story there, but man, it flows. Anyway, so I guess what I'm saying is these these issues read really fast, and I don't know, it's just, to me, it's the sign of a good writer that can give you a lot of story, give you a lot of character and drama. But he's not overloading you with it. It's not like the whole shit's being put on pause. And he says, now here's the dramatic part. You know, it's <laughs> it's not it, it it's constructed well, I guess, is what I'm saying. So um, now there was a moment, though, you mentioned the guy in the laundromat and I wasn't sure <laughs> how exactly to interpret that. You know, um, I would like to believe that what they did was they ran into the laundromat and basically stole from a guy that was in there doing laundry. But if you buy that, that's how they handled it. What you're left with is the probability that some guy went to a public laundromat in his underwear. And I, there's got to be some kind of a law there. Either that or he went to the laundromat fully dressed and took off the clothes he was wearing to wash them as he was standing there. Well, yeah, and honestly, is that supposed to be better? <laughs> no, that's that's not. I'm just I'm just putting different things in it because that's what I got from it. But at the same time, wow, that's uh, that's not what you want to walk into. But then again, you know, inner city laundromats, weird things happen. Mm, no kidding. It's just that's one of those things. It, it, it's kind of weird. You know what you can 
make a real life connection to sometimes. And if that sounds like a scary segue, it should. Uh, basically, a couple of years ago, I was wandering around um, the neighborhood I used to live in at the time. And mm-hmm. keep in mind, I mean, guys, this was ha- not, it's not Halloween night, it was Halloween day, but it's still friggin' it's still Halloween, right? And one of my neighbors was standing out on his balcony, butt ass naked as the day he was born, right? Like right there in the sunshine, just in front of everything, you know? Now, there are certain things that I was willing to tolerate when I was in college because, hey, you know, fucking it's college, you know, and you got to let some things slide. So, you know, the apartments that I lived in back when I was in my 20s, it's not like you would see it every day. But if you happen to see a little bit of skin, shall we say? Well, just keep in mind, a lot of college kids lived in this apartment. And so, you know, what do you want to hear, you know? What you're willing to tolerate in college versus what you're willing to tolerate as an adult are two very fucking different things. And here was a guy who was just wandering around on his balcony, smoking cigarettes, acting like it was no big deal. I'm guessing he just finished up with something. I I don't really know. I don't want to know the details of what. But that for some reason, this is like the first thing my mind flashed to when I was rereading this issue of Ms. Marvel. I don't know why, but for some reason, maybe it's just that, you know, they kind of look alike. Maybe that's, I don't know, but that's just the first thing that I thought of, you know? So, there you so basically you had a PTSD reaction to uh, this issue of Ms. Marvel. Yeah. Something like, you know what? One of these days I'm going to have to have you on my podcast and not talk about public nudity because I'm thinking, <laughs> it's okay. Back- I bring that out in people. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I remember back to the, to the nightfall episode and you know what I saw somebody do with the night quest trade paperback one time. And <laughs> uh, I promise that, that, that is not my life. You know, I don't see it all that often, but it, <laughs> I believe you. Mm. Um, but because of the fact that these, these issues are so easy to sum, summarize, it almost leaves less for there to say, but there was an aspect of the Superhuman Registration Act that if you just read the main Civil War limited series, I don't know that you would necessarily be be sensitive to. And that is the fact that minors are not immune to this law. You know, mm-hmm. now I think who I think most people who just pick these issues up and just you know read them without giving it a whole lot of thought would probably assume that children would be exempted from this just because that's got to be the only way to go. But, you know, it comes out in the course of conversation that, you know what, you're a minor and that, you know, good for you, I guess, but you need to understand you are going to register or you are going into the clink. It's going to be one of the two. Your age is no protection here. And, you know, up to this point, the Superhuman Registration Act, you know, people could, you know, read whatever political metaphor into that that they want to or not, if that if that's their thing. There are a lot of different ways that that you can that that you can skin that cat. But at least the assumption that I'd always made is that this is a keeping in mind what we're talking about here. This was a relatively just law, you know. In as much as 
it's not intended to penalize people who don't need to be penalized. You know, it's not predatory in that way, you know? Then you get into this this concept that that a kinder sorry I was about to say kindergartners that minors are not exempt and now this kind of takes a sort of a dark direction I mean it may, I'm not trying to lead you or anything like that here but I mean did that phase you at all the fact that there is no age limit on this not really because when you're dealing with something like well let, let's look at it Franklin Richards Franklin Richards, there have been times in the history of the FF where his powers kick in and bad stuff happens. Now, it's contained normally within the FF as a family or the Baxter building or Four Freedoms Plaza, wherever they're living at the moment. Um, But, you know, bad things happen. So it makes perfect sense that because of Spider-Man, essentially, you know, they have to factor in what kids are like plus you have the new warriors were the kickoff to all of this yeah so it makes perfect sense that they'd be like you know adults have to register oh and you kids oh yeah you definitely have to register and then you're getting into sticky situations like civil rights and rights of minors and can minors sign contracts and whatever and you have to get the parents involved and basically you know iran is is given a pretty pretty simple you know proposition either you stay here and get trained or you stop doing what you're doing completely and never do it again so there is a choice here it's not like kids with superpowers are you know hunted like younglings and taken into the order and put off in some you know high castle or whatever you know it's basically like okay you have powers you have to decide what you want to do and you know, if, if you go out there unregistered and, you know, use your abilities, then you're going to have to pay the consequences. Just like if a teenager goes out and kills a bunch of people, they're going to have to face the consequences. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I watch a lot of Law and & Order. And one of the things that comes up a lot on that show is when do we try kids as adults? And it's always like a case by case basis. Whereas here it seems to be kind of a similar thing where, you know, it's, you know, how hard you want to go after the kid probably is predicated on how powerful that kid is. I mean, if it's, if it's somebody of a prowler level of power where it's just a normal person in a costume going out there and putting their lives on the line, you're probably not going to go out as hard as them as somebody with the power to, like, you know, level cities or whatever. All right. Fair enough. I just wanted to ask you about that because that to me was the moment that the Superhuman Registration Act, like, things kind of got a little dark with it, you know? And it did actually kind of make – because when you – when you think about it, and kind of as you were saying, that does open up a sort of weird legal quagmire of, you know, you're putting parents in the position, I assume they would have to sign because, I mean, this is established fucking law. You know, there is no contract that, generally speaking, there's really no contract that is going to be legally binding upon a minor simply because they are a minor. And if you're, if you've got a superhuman registration act, I assume that the child is going to have to sign something except they can't sign it because they're fucking their, their minors. And so that means the parents have to sign it. And I can't 
think of very many parents who would be okay with something like, you know, and it, it, it just, that is when you start getting into, I don't mean like the real, real world, but like the real world implications of what the Superhuman Registration Act truly means uh-huh. to Joe Sixpack, the man on the street in the Marvel Universe. And the ugly directions that this could go in that, you know, yes, this was a matter of, you could say public demand, but it's one of those things that it's like people didn't really think too much about until after the ink was dry and this thing had been signed into law. Well, motherfucker, this is what you were asking for. So it's kind of late to back out now, you know, and I don't know. It's just one of those kind of weird, fucked up ethical dilemmas that I think makes for. For this type of fiction, it makes for good fiction, you know, and the fact that I don't think that there's an easy answer to this. And that's what makes it so interesting, at least to me. So um, but these same things are actually a a great big part of why some people I think were maybe turned off by Civil War simply because of the complications that it raises. And I don't know. I mean, it's just of all fictional universes where you could tell this type of a story, Marvel is is going to be the best place probably to do it. So. All of this is to say I approve. <laughs> now, do you do you have anything else for that issue, or do you or are no, you ready I'm, to move on? I'm, I'm pretty much ready to go to the <laughs> the thing, the issue where shit gets real. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of the issue where the shit gets real, Ms. Marvel, number eight. Uh, title is for the best. Synopsis is as follows: Shroud is under custody. Fuck it, I'm just going to go with it now. Shroud is under custody at the Avengers Tower, and Carol interrogates him about Julia Carpenter's recovery and whereabouts. Max remembers how Julia was left paraplegic, but doctors were able to synthesize the spider formula that gave Julia her powers. In time, she regained her powers and her ability to walk. She was able to reconnect with her daughter Rachel and get her life back on track. He calls Carol out on her work to hunt people down like animals, and for someone who's supposed to be a hero... She's acting like a thug. Carol throws it back at him, saying that Julia smashed uh, smashed her into a guardrail and put innocent lives in jeopardy. Later, Ms. Marvel and her team, Aranya included, arrive, at, uh, arrive in Denver, Colorado. Julia is staying with her parents and is uh, packing her bags with Rachel. At first, Ms. Marvel attempts to have Julia uh, come with her without further incident, but... Julia refuses to join uh, the government's crusade and locks her daughter up in a car to protect her. Julia attacks her, but Ms. Marvel takes her down, and S.H.I.E.L.D. agents separate her from her daughter. Anya is left shocked by the turn of events and begins having doubts about the SHRA. Carol also expresses regret at taking Julia away from Rachel. When she returns to her apartment, Carol stumbles upon a surprise guest. It's Rogue, and she and Carol have got a problem to solve. To be continued. But not in this episode. So, Bailey, your thoughts? The um, <laughs> the biggest standout for this issue with me is that Arana is told to keep an eye on Julia's daughter. Mm-hmm. And the girl rabbits, like, immediately. I mean, it's not even like she gets to the car and the girl just bolts. And my first thought of that was... Okay, you can train somebody, you can give them, you know, orders and all that, but you cannot factor in the human equation. And I don't think it's Arana's fault that this happened, basically. 
because it's her first mission and she just thought, I'm going to go talk to this kid. She wasn't expecting the kid to run out of the car. Next time, she will be prepared for that, uh, if there is a next time, because she starts having her, uh, I want to say obligatory doubts, but I think they're natural doubts. I mean, it's all well and good to have a belief structure, but then when you're when that belief structure is put to the test, you have to make a decision and moments of doubt and moments of like, I can't do this are just perfectly human. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated the fact that Arana had this moment, you know, that Carol believes it will pass, but she has this moment. She's like, I was taking, you know, parents away from their kids and stuff. This is real. It's not just this, you know, piece of paper with a bunch of dictates written down on it. It's real people being affected by it. Uh, Julia, um, love you to death. If you cared about your parents, you would have taken this fight away from their house. Um, but that's just me. I'm, uh, I'm kind of picky about houses getting destroyed. I mean, whole buildings I'm okay with because, well, I like double standards, but, um, no. Well, and that, let's face it, the capitalist fucking pigs had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, one standard will do. But still, it's just... Like, if she cared about her family, she would have taken it outside, so to speak, and not keep bringing it back inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I also put myself in the position of Julia's father and how freaking scary it would be if not only, like, four army helicopters showed up with dudes dropping out, but two superheroes started flying towards me. I'd run like hell, too. Uh, I wouldn't get very far, but I'd run. So, I mean, it was just a very powerful conclusion to, you know, the crossover story basically where you know everybody's morals and philosophical ideas are put to the test with a big fight which is how superhero comics pretty much work so uh, I also liked the flashback stuff showing how Julia got her groove back so to speak Mm -hmm. Uh, and I really I fell for Julia because really all she wants to do is leave the country you know, and and then that's the thing is that she tried to do it where they were just going to be like, well, just let me walk away. And Carol's like, I can't do that. I'm sorry. You hurt people. It's not you escaped and nothing happened. You know, you drove her into a guardrail. I mean, that's that's going to make it personal. Yeah. So it's not as simple as I just want to leave the country. If it was as simple as I just want to leave the country before any fighting happened, she and the shroud would have gotten there. The shroud would have went to Canada, and Julia would have just traveled to Colorado and went to Canada. You know, right? So, in a certain way, I'm not trying to point my finger at anybody, but a lot of what happened here was all Julia's fault because of how she chose to deal with what she was dealing with. Right, and that's the thing. I mean, I don't think there's any kind of an explicit timeline that you can point to and say this is how things unfolded. But what I interpreted from Amazing Spider-Man is that there were at least a couple of weeks but between the times uh, Stamford, Connecticut happened mm-hmm. versus the time the shit got signed into law and then went into effect. Yeah. And maybe even a month or two. Now, they can't show all of that because this is comics and they've only got so much time to tell the story, but I got the impression that there was a decent amount of time in between when Everybody knew how this was going to play out, and you had an opportunity. If what you wanted to do was to leave the country, 
you had a, an opportunity to do that. And I, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think Shield would have come looking for you. You know, if no. You, if, if you would have went to Canada, they probably would have just written you off. As long as you don't step into the United States and you know break the law, I don't think you know. It's it's not like we sent special forces into Canada during the '60s to get draft dodgers back. No. And I've actually seen people say, you know what? Well, fucking maybe we should have. And you know what? <laughs> if you guys feel like you want to, you know, violate a a, a sovereign <laughs> a country's, nation, yeah, yeah <laughs> violate their borders like that, <laughs> no. <laughs> but you know, the fucking Monday morning quarterbacks on that. But you know, I I really don't think that you know anything much would have. You know, they're not going to throw up any roadblocks or anything like that. But you know, you you basically infiltrate the enforcement squad for this law after it's gone into effect they built all of this infrastructure and you seriously think that you're going to be able to just waltz on out of there i mean what the fuck did you think was i mean so yeah the other thing though i mean i yes i agree with you that this is you know mostly like 99 percent of this is is julia's fault but there is this crucial one percent where Carol basically sent a bug girl to babysit a very impressionable child, fully expecting her, I guess, not to freak out at the sight of a bug girl and, you know, breaking into her car. And it's like, what the hell did you think was going to happen? What were you what were you thinking? Were you thinking? I mean, I don't know. And. Oh, there's plenty of blame to go around. I'm not (laughs) I'm not suggesting that. (laughs) Right. And we're talking about, you know, just like one percent. But. You know, but there's this moment where it becomes very real to Aranya. You know, this is what is on the table here. I mean, today you were pulling a child away from her mother. Um, who's to say that tomorrow you're not going to have to kill somebody? You know, it, it. You know, this is the Wild West now. And or actually, it's not the Wild West. We're trying to break the Wild West. And... I'm sorry, there are there's going to have to be some or maybe a lot of collateral damage here. And I really don't think that filtered through to Aranya back when this was all just for her. It was just fun and games. And she wasn't thinking that, you know what, these people face very ugly situations and they're only going to get uglier in the weeks to come. And I'm going to have to be at the center of all of that. And. You know, you're a 16-year-old kid. You don't, you don't always think ahead. You know, what you're thinking about is perhaps high-minded ideals or you're thinking about the here and now. Very rarely are you going to be thinking about the short-term future. You know, what does this look like day to day? And she got a – you know, this is one hell of a trial by fire, but it does make you think that – what I like about these three issues is that it starts off – I mean, it takes us through this this – through this, I guess, escalation of this law is now law. Things get ugly. Things get really fucking ugly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it starts off, if you wanted to kind of see see this as a sort of a Disney type of thing that's going to be all soft and cute and everything, you're going to find out real quick how ugly this this, this truly is. And, it, it, again, it on the one hand, I mean, do people have a right to be safe and secure in their own persons versus is there – ever a law 
that's morally justifiable that separates parents from their children as a condition of breathing, you know? And again, I mean, these are, this is the kind of conflict that I enjoy about civil war. You know, I'm not saying any of this to be critical. I'm saying that, that I think this is all very creatively well done, um, uh, story concepts that they're playing with here. And this is the, you know, if you have to put it into some kind of a political or real world sort of metaphor, how many times in life have you ever heard somebody say, you know, there ought to be a law against such and such. Well, think about that for just a minute. You know, if somebody's really serious when they say there ought to be a law, somebody's going to have to write that law. Somebody's going to have to sign that, sign that, that law. And then somebody is going to have to enforce that law. Mm-hmm. And the enforcement can sometimes be a little bit nasty. So I'm not trying to give you a political lecture here. I'm just saying that I fucking love this this entire story. I love Civil War. This is why I love it. This this is great. No, because it's you're you're right because Reed does his best to give all sides so that it's up to us to decide where we fall on this. And yes, we're following a character. You know, Carol is the main protagonist. She is, she's the title character. Mm-hmm. So there is an assumption there that what she's doing is the right thing because she's the main character. Otherwise, she would be spouting what the right thing is to do. But I think what Reed is doing, which is really kind of genius, is letting other characters say what I'm looking at. And I go, well, they've got a point, you know. And it's kind of funny because this really made me think these issues more than the main series made me think about a superhero registration act. Now, from a universal aspect, I don't want to read about a superhero universe where everybody works for an agency because I think that could get really boring really quick. You know, one of the great things about superheroes is sometimes they're acting on their own and you have to deal with their personal lives and all that. You know, the idea that, you know, it kind of makes sense that if people had superpowers that they would have to be trained and and carry badges and carry insurance and, you know, be bonded. I mean, I won't let a guy in my house, you know, to fix my, you know, to fix my roof unless he's got some kind of insurance for his people, you know, that kind of thing. And that's all well and good. But. To be fair, superheroes are fantasy. Mm-hmm. They're what if. They're 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 science fiction. They're whatever you want to call it. But they're they're stories about larger than life characters doing things that we can only dream of. Uh, and if you can fly, uh, keep it to yourself because I think your life would get overly complicated if you let that out. But anyways, um, <laughs> the um, but the thing is, is that this really made me think if I'm going to put myself into the story, like I can disagree with the idea behind it. But at the end of the day, if it's happening, you have to deal with what's in front of you. And what's in front of me is Carol making a lot of sense. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to say, if you want to use these abilities and you want to help people using these abilities, you have to register yourself to do that. It is not saying if you have superpowers, you have to go live in a in, in an internment camp, you know? Mm-hmm. It is not saying you can't use your powers. But it, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, we have driving laws, for example. There are speed limits, and those limits are in place 
to kind of keep everybody safe because the roads are everybody's, you know, everybody uses them. You don't live in a society where you're told every, well, except in Jersey, but that's entirely beside the point uh, where you're told, you know, where you have to go through a toll every five minutes and pay for something, you know, to my understanding, that's all over the place in the, uh, on the East coast. Yeah. When you, when you are given your driver's license, you know, you are told you have to carry insurance. Why do you have to carry insurance? Well, as we found out a couple years ago, when you're in an accident, you need that insurance. Okay. So yes, it's a giant pain in the ass. And yes, it's just like, well, I have to do this, but it's there for everybody. Essentially. It's not like they're trying to keep you from driving by giving you a license. They're just saying, if you're going to do this, you have to follow these rules. And, when I was thinking about that in terms of having superpowers, I'm like, well, that kind of makes sense. Now there is always the chance that that could go pear shaped in a, in a hurry and people could use the system to their own ends, change the system. And suddenly you are an internment camp if you have superpowers. But at the same time, when society is working on all six cylinders, having a registration like this isn't a bad idea. And I think that's where Carol is coming from on this. Agreed. Well, and you know, the, the thing is one of the reasons that I think a superhero, like if there really were real life superheroes, like that have superpowers and stuff, something like this would be sort of not only inevitable, but I would say on some level kind of desirable is it does kind of lead into the morality of, of, I guess, the sort of lone wolf type of superheroics, where you have all of these people who are out there seeking justice. But here's the thing, dude. I mean, whose justice are they seeking? You know, I mean, I think that there's a lot of mojo to the idea that Batman, at his, in his purest essence, is not a superhero. He's a vigilante. He's a guy mm-hmm. who's going out there who's enforcing what he believes to be justice upon a public that did not elect him. He has no accountability. He has no internal affairs that are, are performing oversight. Um, he's answerable to no one. And when you come right down to it, it's kind of I, – I think in, in America especially, we have a way of romanticizing the individual to the degree that we all believe that our sense of right and wrong and our sense of justice is universally applicable. And it only takes a five minute conversation with somebody about the merits of the death penalty and when that, when or if that should be applied before you find out real quick, you know what? We don't all agree on what is right and what's wrong, what is just and unjust. And this idea of, you know, these sort of, all of these kind of lone cowboys out there doing these doing these things where people get hurt and sometimes get hurt really bad and the public is just supposed to shake it off you know there's again it it, it just lends a lot of credibility to the idea that you know what there would be a superhuman registration act and that is maybe the most genteel possible outcome it's entirely possible that they just nuke these fuckers off the face of the map Mm-hmm. And probably go to you know uh, sleep like babies later that night. You know, I mean the amount of turmoil that these people could possibly cause, uh, no one's qualified to say. You know, 
And like I, I mean, and, and, and again, this is just a really friggin' long way of me saying I fucking love Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's also pretty much all I really have to say, at least about these issues. So, now do you have any other closing remarks before we we go to break? No, I actually think I got everything that uh, I wanted out there. All right, cool. All right, well, the only other thing is uh, the issue ends with uh, Carol and Rogue basically having a meeting, and this sort of leads really away from Civil War, and it kind of puts Ms. Marvel back into a little bit more of her own sort of storyline. And so I don't want to go too much into that, except to say that I... I truly don't know when, but the day's going to come when I resume talking about Ms. Marvel and I can get into this, all of this stuff going on with Rogue and the X-Men and, you know, this entire just friggin' awesome story that, that comes out of that. Big shit is on the horizon with Ms. Marvel with this story. I'm going to talk about it. I just, I truly, hand on heart, I don't know when. So, but I'm going to figure something out. But I'm... You know, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be in 2016, put it that way. So maybe I'll be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've got a lot of 2016 more or less figured out. I just don't see much, much room for it. So one never knows, though. But like, like I say, I'm going to come back to it at some point or another. So that, I think, is pretty much uh, that. Though. So I'm going to take a break and we'll be right back after these messages. We are on pause. in need of some relaxation? Is the pressure getting to him? Well then, we've got great news for you. Here at Magnus Doggy Brobel, we have over 1,000 bitches in heat to help your dog relax. For just $300, your little guy can get the happy ending you only wish that you could get. We have all different kinds of breeds to satisfy your furry roommate. Labradors for those who need some all-American love. Shizu for those who prefer something a bit more exotic. Why, we even have Doberman Pinchers if anybody likes it rough. And this weekend, we're offering a discounted special. Two bitches at the same time. And this won't cost you a million dollars either. Get two for the price of one for your studly pet. So. Bring your furry buddy to Magnus Doggy Brothel. Our facilities are licensed for the finest and doggy pleasure that you'll ever find. Why, just check out all the rave reviews we've gotten on Yelp. Magnus Doggy Brothel. Because a bang is always better than a whimper, right? Right? Am I right? 
Enter at your own risk. Patent pending. Magnus Doggy Brothel is a subsidiary of Demonzo Happy Ending Ventures. Not responsible for loss or injury. Subject to terms and conditions. Void where prohibited. taking a sip periodically as this as this segment progresses yes i am in fact drinking eggnog now right about now you might be thinking but magnus but magnus right now it is the month of april so how is it possible that you are drinking eggnog you know what i'm glad you asked comic book guy basically i am recording this with michael during the build-up to christmas which truly is the most wonderful time of year and right now, the eggnog continues to flow freely. It'll be a few more weeks yet before those evil dairy farms take it away from us again. It'll be another year before we can have it back. But for right now, it flows freely. And so I've got a nice big cup full of Southern Comfort eggnog that I'm drinking out of. Uh, this is my girlfriend's Hunger Games Catching Fire movie theater cup. It's a pretty good size, too, so... Um, she's a pretty big Hunger Games fan, you understand, and there was this, when Catching Fire, the movie Catching Fire was coming out, a lot of movie theater chains, they had this sort of tie-in going where if you buy a drink and then you pay them $2 extra, they'll give you a Catching Fire cup. This is riveting to listen to, I'm sure, so, <laughs> anyway, um, how you doing, how, how you doing, Bailey? I, I'm of the opinion that the, uh, the eggnog, uh, lobby is, is, is making headways because Nog is appearing sooner it's just pumpkin dog during, like, you know, the lead up to Halloween. So, yeah, what are I'm, your thoughts on that? How do you feel uh, about that? Well, uh, I, you know, I, I've said before and I said, and I will say again that there's two types of people in the world there are people that like pumpkin spice and there are people that don't like pumpkin spice and they need to shut the fuck up. Um, the ones that don't like it need to shut up? Yeah, because I'm tired of every time that rolls around. It's like one of my favorite times of the year. I'm being told, pumpkin spice is everywhere. Don't drink it. Don't eat it. It's not It's not hurting you. So, um, and I realize that's a hard line to take, but it's um, something that doesn't really matter, so I feel comfortable in taking that hard line. But anyways, um, but because I, even though I like pumpkin spice, it doesn't. I, I don't think pumpkin spice should be everywhere. Uh, for example, pumpkin spice Twinkies are awful. Just flat out awful. They don't taste good. I wouldn't so, think so. No offense, I, I, I wouldn't think so. So, but, you know, I like my pumpkin spice lattes, and, you know, the um, it's kind of funny. I, I really knew that I, I went from the autumn to Christmas uh, mood is when I stopped buying the Coffee Mate pumpkin spice creamer uh, and went for the eggnog creamer. Mm. Uh, which, which is very good, by the way. I, I heartily recommend it. Um, but, I do. but I look at pumpkin nog, and I'm like, you know, some things need to remain pure. And eggnog... Uh, some people do bad eggnog, and they need to pay for that at some point in their lives. 
They need to pay with their lives, yes. <laughs> but, you know, eggnog is something that is, is perfect in and of itself, and I don't think it needs a brand, you know, if, if you know what I'm saying. You don't need to... You know, what are, what are we going to do next? We're going to have, like, red, white, and blue nog right around the time of, you know, Independence Day? Or are we going to have, like, blood red nog right around Valentine's Day? I mean, a, a line has to be drawn. And I think the pumpkin nog is where we need to draw that line. Well, uh, fair enough. And, like, to your point, the, um... I don't know what it is these days that everybody feels like they need to get into everybody else's business and, and mm-hmm. tell them what they can and cannot do. But for those of you who don't know, and I, I, I would think if you're not friends with me on Facebook, you probably don't know this. But for those of you who don't know, I am a Christmas junkie. I friggin' love Christmas. And for those of you who, who even who are my friends on Facebook, you may not know that I've actually been sort of unofficially celebrating Christmas literally since Halloween uh, October the 31st of this year which is to say 2015 I've just been in a very Christmas type of headspace I've been listening to that music I've been watching uh, you know Christmas oriented uh, uh, shows and movies and whatnot and there's this entire segment of the world's population that feel I guess they, they feel entitled to tell me, hey man, it's November. You're not supposed to be doing that right now. This is th- th- this is time for Thanksgiving. Well, fuck you, because you know what? Number one, I, I see you bitch and complain about Thanksgiving too. You know that it's, a, it's like a murderer's holiday or whatever they called it this year. And number two, I mean, I, who the fuck cares what I do in terms of my own personal observance of Christmas, all right? I don't understand where that's anybody's fucking business, but somehow it's it, it, everyone feels entitled to give their opinion about things they just need to shut the fuck up about. And I'm mm-hmm. sorry, you know, I, I kind of feel solidarity with the, the pumpkin spice crowd on this. And I mean, I, I don't mean one of the members of the Spice Girls. I mean, like the people who like pumpkin spice, the flavor, you know? Because they're no less... Actually, you know what? I mean, Christmas is kind of sacred in this country. Pumpkin spice, that's... A lot of people view that as a fad. I mean, if anything, I'm probably getting off light. I shudder to think what the pumpkin spice... The pumpkin spice bunch has to go through. But I don't know. I mean, it's just... Why can't people enjoy the things that they enjoy? And everyone else just get out of their face. Guys, there are so few things in this world that are truly enjoyable. That truly give anybody happiness. This world is full of poverty, murder rape, disease. There's all kinds of really just fucking horrifying things going on in this world, and you're going to bash on somebody because they like pumpkin spice or they're celebrating Christmas a little bit too early for you? Well, fuck you. Okay? That's just the way I feel about it. So Yeah, it, it, it's, this, it's this thing where people feel that they're in their own like protective bubble at all times and if you pierce that bubble mm-hmm. and, and this is this is all around i you know i i i, I think i have a a reputation somewhat for fairness mm-hmm. uh in terms of how i view things mm-hmm. uh usually it's about comics because that's mostly what i talk about but you know i uh 
I get just as mad at the people that get upset at someone telling them Merry Christmas as the uh, I get just as mad at those people as I do at the people that get mad about Happy Holidays because it's like somebody went out of their way to say something nice to you and your reaction is going to be I'm just going to be an asshole about this I mean it's just it doesn't make any sense to me this this whole thing about pumpkin spice mm-hmm. every time that it pops up I'm like are Wait, we're really getting upset about this? I mean, we're, 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 we're getting upset about flavoring in overpriced coffee. And that, that, and that, and that people, uh, companies have basically said, hey, people like pumpkin spice. We're going to put pumpkin spice on everything. People, I'm, I'm here to tell you one thing. If a fad happens, it's happening because people are making money off of it. The moment that fad no longer makes money it's gonna be gone and it doesn't buy it shouldn't offend you or bother you to walk through kroger or walk through Publix or walk through walmart and see pumpkin spice stuff because one in a month it's gonna be gone and two shouldn't you be more focused on what you're getting yeah seriously i mean mean, if you're really offended by that you have you are in desperate need of a life so it's just it just it just doesn't it, I just don't understand it. You know, people who want to, you know, I I like to keep the Christmas music to right around Thanksgiving, but that's a personal thing with me. I'm one of these people that I like I like certain things to be at certain time periods. But if somebody wants to listen to Christmas music year round, I'm not going to be like, okay, I'm not with you. But you know, that's your thing. They're your earbuds. Yeah, you that know. is a little interesting. I'll give you that. So, but, you know, if you want to start, but, you know, the Hallmark Channel certainly wants to start celebrating Christmas on October 31st, because that's where they start showing their movies. Now, that created a little bit of a controversy in the Bailey household, but that's entirely beside the point. Hmm. Well, fair enough. I don't know. I, look, I, I didn't mean to turn this into, uh, you know, this big reservoir. I don't get to talk about this stuff very often. This is great. Okay. All right. Well, at the same time, I didn't want you to feel like, you know, you were being dragged into something, but it's just, I look guys, here's the thing. I mean, ultimately we all live on this same planet and God help us all. We've got to share it. All right. I wish it were otherwise, but this is the hand that we've all been dealt. Shut the fuck up and deal with it. You know, I mean, and, and the other thing is, you know, just the pointlessness of such a boring fucking moral crusade. I mean, you know, the same amount of energy that you're investing into your 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 campaign against pumpkin spice or against uh, pre, what you believe to be a premature observance of Christmas. Imagine if you put that into cleaning your house or talking to your children or if you're if you're into knitting and stuff, making a sweater. I mean, there are so fucking many things you can do with that kind of free time. I'm surprised you've even got the time to whine and complain like this. But there's, there truly is. I, I've seen. I'm not a member, but I've seen it that there was at least at one point a, you know, a fuck pumpkin spice uh, flavor uh, Facebook page. I don't know if you saw that. No. And, and I was like, you know, wow. If you ever think about just how committed, and how determined, and how kind of pathological you have to be, to start a campaign that is against something you need to get a life man i'm there's no nice way to say it so i'm just gonna say it you know that's against something like that i mean if you're against ending childhood hunger or you're you're against uh you know ending you know sex trafficking or something i i think i I think people will give you a pass 
on having the commitment to that cause. But yeah, just like, what the hell? Seriously? Yeah. What the fresh hell? Right. And that and that kind of leads into something that, you know, you and I were talking about this sort of off mic a while ago. Um, I guess you could call it a geek solidarity. And what I told you was that I don't care if somebody is into My Little Pony. I don't care if somebody's into Twilight. You know, I mean, the way I this God's honest, this is the way I look at it. You know, you're not out there killing people. Mm -hmm. So whatever you're into, enjoy, you know, you're not hurting anybody. And I it just it, it there's this weird kind of judgmentalism that. I want to be careful how I say this, but I feel like that as geeks, what you and I have witnessed and god knows what we've experienced i mean you and me personally what we've experienced is i remember a time in the 90s when it was politically fucking incorrect to go into a comic book store to get the new amazing spider-man or to get the or god knows mm -hmm. to get to get the new uh the new action comics because there was some creepy fucking goth chick in there who was skulking around trying to find the new issue of sandman or the new issue of fables or whatever it was and you are here to buy superheroes. That's so tawdry. Or there would be, you know, from the X-Men contingent, you know, what, you you collect Superman? Why, do you ride the, the short bus too? <laughs> and we're already at each other's throats about meaningless bullshit in the first place. I really don't understand what business it is of mine to tell somebody, hey, if you like Twilight movies, you're not you're not allowed to watch them, you know, because I say so. You know, what's up with that? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I have never, I have a, if somebody once asked me, do I have a bar when it comes to things? It's like, is there something you wouldn't like? And I always, my, my, my knee jerk reaction to that question is always child pornography. And it's a joke, but it's, it's trying to put into context that, yeah, there are things I don't like. Yeah, there are things that, you know, I wouldn't participate in. But, you know, if we're talking about comic books, you know, Yes, I have my standards, but that doesn't mean I'm going to uh, – it's not means I'm going to look down on somebody. I watched I watched an entire documentary on Baronies uh, that was on, uh, of all channels, Logo. And one, I was kind of fascinated that they got John Delancey, who's the voice of one of the main villains on My Little Pony, to narrate it. Uh, but they showed, like, all these different – people that were all these different men that were into my little pony my favorite section was there was a convention that had a that had a side because you know conventions you know everyone's there for one thing but they have like little side clubs and stuff and it was basically members oh, yeah. of the military that are bronies wow that's pretty niche or is and it like, i mean how okay. many members are there <laughs> it filled a small restaurant so you know wow. but to be fair, are you really going to get into a Marine's face who likes My Little Pony? I mean, I mean, you might. I don't think it's going to go well for you, but you might. So, you know, what that documentary taught me is that we are all living in glass houses, you know. And if you're going to sit there and say, that sucks, well, that's your opinion, and that's fine. You know, if you don't like the quality of the material put out by the people that produce My Little Pony... That is your right to write as a human being on planet Earth to feel that way. But 
you know, don't sit there and say it shouldn't be there just because you don't like it or they're weird for liking it because, again, it's not child pornography. <laughs> right. So Yeah, that's like, no, that, that's actually a really, a really good way of looking at it. I was thinking of it more from the standpoint of differentiating ourselves. I mm-hmm. mean, if you've been on Facebook for any amount of time, 10 to 1, you've got at least a few friends on your Facebook that are big time sports fans. And it seems nary a day goes by, or at least not a week, where somebody doesn't share a meme that makes fun of the Dallas Cowboys. Now, guys, I'm not going to bullshit you. Yes, I'm a native-born Texan. I could give two dams about football, okay? I don't care. So if somebody wants to sit there all day watching what I think is the most pointless game in the entire planet, and guys, I'm saying this in the same breath where I acknowledge that golf exists, then... Look, whatever. It's their thing, you know, but sports fans have this way of just tearing each other down over, Mm -hmm. forgive me, laundry. And I'm sorry, as a as a I guess as a geek fraternity, I think we should be better than that. And so if somebody if somebody's thing is and the reason I keep coming back to Twilight, look, I've never seen any of the movies myself, so maybe. You know what? Maybe they do suck. I don't know. But they made shit tons of money. So there's got to be something there that people enjoy. And my point is that whatever it is that somebody's into in terms of uh, geek media, you know, as annoyed as I get by the ubiquity of Doctor Who, I don't begrudge Doctor Who fans watching this stuff. My objection has always been this. This It's almost like it's they're evangelists. You know, it's not enough that they're into something. Other people have to enjoy it, too. And I remember Buffy fans were kind of the same way. And there's almost like this weird Borg mentality that takes over, you know, where resistance is futile. We will assimilate you. And, you know, that I I'm really not okay with. But Doctor Who itself, you know, like you were saying, dude, they're not they're not downloading uh, kitty porn. So. How bad can they really be, you know? Uh, have at it. I, look, like I say, there are so many destructive things that they could be doing to other people, to themselves, to their to their environment, whatever. And, wow, this... And, and not only that, you know, bad shit happens on a regular basis to people. I mean, you know, from from illness to unemployment to just, you know, just... We live in a world where the worst things can happen to you at any given moment, and there's really not a, you know, no one is immune from this. Mm-hmm. You know, how well they can weather it, you know, is the, is debatable, but no one is immune from, you know, personal problems. And if what gets you through the day is reading the Twilight books, go for it. You know, I'm happy for you, actually, because you have you have cracked the code. Congratulations. You have found the way to get through it without loading you know, without, you know, I joked before, without loading the shotgun into your mouth, pulling the trigger and repeating. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you've done it. So more power to you. And if someone's going to get in your face and tell you you're stupid for liking it, then you don't need that type of negativity in your life. Well, so. And- my, 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 and my further advice to that is stay off Facebook because people are going to get in your face. Oh yeah, they will. Um, what the very first con that I ever went to, like as, as an adult, 
I was shit. 29, 28 or 29. And I went to this con and it was, it's comic Palooza, uh, here in Houston. And it, it needs to be said comic Palooza was not then what it is now. And now it's a much bigger deal. But even back then, I mean, it was pretty crowded. There was a lot of interest. There were a lot of people there, a lot of costumes, a lot of artists. It was just really cool. And except for a comic book store, it hit me. I was wandering around, and it was this kind of surreal moment where Ray Park got up from behind the table, wandered over to the sword display because some smartass put Ray Park's table next to a sword vendor, and he did this impromptu sword demonstration for just anybody who happened to be passing by, you know, just to give them something cool to look at. And... By the way, guys, if you've never seen Ray Park do a sword demonstration, I do recommend it. It's, you know, Darth mm-hmm. Maul is awesome and everything, but this guy is a master. You know, it's, it is it is incredible to watch. And he did this, this impromptu sword demonstration, and this was moments after I got my picture taken with uh, Peter Mayhew. And in just a few minutes after all of that, I was going to swing by a uh, an artist table cuz I was going to cuz I I was going to I done a commission basically and uh he he said that it would be it would be finished by about that time. Guys, I have not felt that comfortable, that at home, that welcomed anywhere. You know? And I've all, I I've kind of joked and it's not really a, it's not completely a joke, but it's kind of a joke that you know what? Growing up geek, when when Michael and I grew up, I would almost want to compare it to growing up gay in that you're different from everybody else in this very important and very fundamental way that affects your entire life and the way that you interact with other people. And it, it, in a weird kind of way, it sort of limits your ability to really identify with others just because you know for a fact you're coming at life from a very different standpoint, you know? And all of that was off the table when I showed up at Comic Palooza because I'm surrounded by uh, people who are who are bronies or they love Doctor Who or, or, or they're into Star Trek or, or fucking whatever their, whatever their thing is. You know, there are tons of Vulcans running around. And that kind of acceptance is what I think we should kind of strive for as as a fan community, you know, and this idea of looking down your nose at other people just because they're into Star Trek or they're into Archie comics. Shit, guys, I like some Archie comics. I mean, they're actually kind of fun to read, you know, whatever it is that people are into. And, you know, honestly, what fucking gives you the right to tell somebody else that it's not okay for you to enjoy this? You know, you shouldn't watch that show or read that comic or, or, or whatever their thing is. You know, fuck you. And I say this, guys, I am not a manga fan, like at all. But, you know, there are tons of manga fans running around at, at your average con. And I don't know. I mean, it's just this is maybe the one time somebody will ever have in a year to feel normal, to feel welcome and accepted somewhere. And you're going to take that away from them? Who do you think you are, you know? So anyway, I'm not trying to like moralize or anything. I just, I wanted to get that off my chest because I truly don't think I've ever said that on mic before. So, so 
Yeah, so how about those comics, huh? <laughs> well, first up, uh, the last two comics that Michael and I are are gonna are gonna talk about today. Uh, the first one, this is Iron Man and Captain America: Casualties of War, and this sort of defies synopsis synops, summarization um, because of the fact that really. It's just two guys standing around talking to each other and basically hashing through their differences. And because of that, there's, no, there's, there, there's just no, I guess, easy narrative way to sum that all up. So forgive me if I summarize it by saying they talk and then they, they fight, but mostly what they're doing is they, they talk. So where are you? On, uh, on this. I mean, what did you think of this comic? The um, the casualties of war uh, was the answer to the question: Why are they acting like this? And are they acting out of or the questions? I guess are they acting out of character? Um, I was very impressed with Christos Gage's ability to look at the history of these two characters going back to the very first time they met mm -hmm. and making civil war work from that perspective. It, uh, you know, I, I, I can't say much good about the art cause it's some of the stiffest art I've ever seen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're during the scenes where they're just talking. It's okay. But whenever there's actually any kind of dynamic movement, the issue falls completely flat. However, on an emotional level, this is the moment where these two characters sit down and kind of hash out why they are where they are and looking at their relationship and going back to when Tony and when Steve was the captain and Tony was on his armor wars kick going back to the very first time they met, going back to, to Avengers things and going back to, a time period where apparently Captain America, because it's it, it's his job, is to show everybody in the Marvel universe how to fight, uh, including you know, going Jarvis, back to, including Jarvis, uh, going back to you know when Steve taught Tony, you know some moves basically, and it's mirrored in what's happening to the in the present. So, you know, it, it's it's a sad story because it shows where these characters were. And now they're on completely different sides, and that's really upsetting. Um, I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot, actually. I I did too. And the thing is, you know, when you when you read the Civil War limited series, one of the things that's kind of missing is a big knockdown, drag out, not fight, but I guess argument between. Uh, Captain America and Iron Man, because ultimately all of Civil War, it's not even really Civil War, because when you think about it, that's a little bit of a misnomer. Civil War is really, I, I guess, it's a war carried out by Captain America and Iron Man through their deputies. And, mm -hmm. they, you know, it's weird for being at such loggerheads with each other. They don't really have all that much screen time with each other in that, you know, in that story. And I think this is the this is probably the only time when 
you know, before the end of the story, you understand when Captain America and Iron Man just sit down. They try to talk. They remember the good times, but. I guess the abiding sensation that you take away from this is that the good times are over. Uh-huh. They've, they've crossed lines with each other, and there's really no coming back from that. And when you look at the aftermath of Civil War and the other stories that, that ensued, with this in the background, one of the things that I've always taken from a lot of those stories is that, yeah – Tony and Steve, they did somewhat bury the hatchet, and they are able to work with each other and everything, but it is not what it used to be. I mean, they used to be friends, brothers, and now it's more like they're just allies or they're uh, partners, they're teammates, but their relationship has really deteriorated as a direct result of what happened in Civil War. And at this point, it doesn't even matter who's at fault, who started what, who said what. They now have – sometimes in life you learn who your friends really are, mm-hmm. and that's not always a very pleasant experience. And to me, that's what these two are kind of working their way through in this issue. And it's it, there's a sense in which it, it really doesn't matter what the future brings. There's no going back to the way that things were, and that's sad. Yeah, and – I just like it from a historical perspective because one of the big things that was going on during this time period is how out of, you know, one of the criticisms leveled at civil war is how out of character everybody was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to a large extent, I I see where that's coming from and I agree with it. But what I think Christos Gage did here is to say, Hey, these people have had conflicts in the past that have put them at odds with each other. This isn't unreasonable. And I think it's just, again, when you take a writer that has a little more finesse with characterization, because I like Christos Gage as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was picking up a lot of his Marvel work at this point. And I was just really, you know, it's like him and Mark Guggenheim and a bunch of other people. Uh, just we're, we're just knocking it out of the park with these characters. And they weren't getting to the Bendis level. Now, to be fair, I think Gage and Guggenheim specifically were also Hollywood people mm-hmm. that were also that were kind of doing this as their side job. But at the same time, because Gage, I think, wrote a lot for Law and Order, uh, as and Guggenheim was one of the producers on that show, uh, which is how you got a victim's name, by the way, of John Byrne at one point. Um, <laughs> they killed John Byrne on Law and Order. Uh, and got his permission to do so, apparently. So Wow. Uh, yeah, he ha- well, you have to reach out to these people, because uh, if you use their names, they can sue you. <laughs> Which was really weird, because at the exact same time, over on Criminal Intent, the, murder, uh, the, the murderer of the episode was Roger Stern. Uh, was so that intentional? I, uh, I have heard no, but come on. Um... But anyways, uh, the the um, the thing about this issue is it feels very rushed artistically. Yes. Like the writing feels, you know, like it, it flows just nice. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know who the guy uh, I'm not familiar with the artist. So I'm not going to sit there and go, who do they get off the street to do this? Because for all I know, it's somebody who's been working in the business for decades and I'm just talking out of my ass. I think this would have benefited 
from an artist on par of what we saw over like in Ms. Marvel, uh, where the fight scenes would have been dynamic. Right. You know, you know who I would have loved to have seen to do this? Bagley. Oh, yeah. That I mean, because he can balance that. Well, to be fair, the thing, like Captain America, when you think about what a good Captain America artist is going to bring to the table, and to me, that's always going to be the likes of, say, a Ron Garney or somebody along his mm-hmm. lines. The guy that can draw Captain America really, really well may or may not struggle with drawing Iron Man. And I would say verse visa, because not everything can be reduced down to the Norm Brayfogel effect where, yeah, Norm Brayfogel can draw one hell of a good Batman. I don't know that I need to see his flash, though. And I don't want to I don't want to say that, you know, there are few artists out there who can do both and make them look good. But I would say, though, that those characters are so different from each other in terms of, you know, their, I guess, their visual, I don't know, largesse, that what it takes to draw a badass Captain America, the artist who's capable of doing that may struggle with drawing a badass Iron Man. And I'll say this much for this guy's name, I think, is Jeremy Hahn. He, at least, mm-hmm. when these characters are just sitting around talking to each other, he at least draws both of them, and they look great. So I'll, I'll give him that much. But, and there is actually something else uh, to think about. I used to be pretty down on uh, Vinny Coletta. And honestly, if you don't understand why I would be down on Vinny Coletta, you just need to listen to Tales of the JSA. They'll tell you more about it than I ever could. And we are very careful in what we say about Vinnie Coletta. Yeah, and and well, you should be. But somebody actually came up with what I think is a, a completely valid, totally lucid defense of Vinnie Coletta, and it goes like this. Very rarely did anybody ever come to Vinnie Coletta and say, hey, we need you to do a great job with this. What he was told most often was, hey, we need this done by the end of the week. And that would tend to affect the way that you do your job in terms of quality, I would imagine. And that may be what's going on here. It could be that uh, uh, Christos Gage was just late in uh, handing over the script. And so Jeremy Hahn had no choice but to uh, bang this out just as quick as he could. And hope for the best. So I don't want to come down too hard on the guy on the one hand. But on the other hand, at least, you know, what we have to work with here in this issue, it's clear that he doesn't draw a very dynamic fight scene. Or for that matter, anything other than people just kind of standing around talking to one another, he doesn't do that especially well. And like I say, there could be extenuating circumstances, but nevertheless, it does affect my enjoyment of this comic where when – Steve and Tony finally do start beating the piss out of each other. Something is just missing. And it's to me, it's not as visually powerful as it might have been. But yeah, so that's just what I was thinking. So now do you want to go ahead and move on to uh, the confession? Yeah, sounds great to me. All right, cool. Kind of like uh, 
a lot like Casualties of War, The Confession, it sort of defies easy summarization. And the reason for that is because it's really just, it's not even, it's not even completely, at least the first part of it, it's not even people talking. It's really just one person Mm -hmm. talking. And it, they don't really exactly bury the lead on this either. This, I mean, in a weird kind of way, this is a confession on, on Tony's part in as much as it's not that he has no regrets. And in, in fact, if anything, he's actually got a ton of regrets. The issue is that he knows that he was ultimately right from a strategic standpoint to do this. I mean, it's not a question of morality for him. It's more, more of a pragmatic type of exercise you know, he, in his mind, was saving lives in doing this. And that, again, we're speaking to, I guess, the justification Tony had for doing what he was doing. So I guess, in relation to that, do you buy what what Tony is saying here? I mean, this whole idea of these characters being out of character, does this seem like a better justification for you? It It moves... It moves the goalpost, at least, because here we're getting a clear indication of why he's doing what he's doing. It's not just a couple panels of him going, well, this is going to happen whether we like it or not. And it's not, you know, like a mother spitting in his face and, you know, getting all upset by, you know, and him, you know, looking at her and then later receiving the doll and all the other stuff that happened during the course of of the storyline it's him going, you know, end of the day, this is who I am. And it is a good examination of who Tony Stark is. Tony Stark, since the Marvel Universe is, quote unquote, the more believable universe, because it's a universe outside your door. Um, you have to if you're going to if you're going to take that and reach it to the next stage, he has to be able to conceive of technology that is far beyond what normal tech is right now mm-hmm. to build that suit and for that suit to work. He had to create technology for to you know to make it work. So he is a futurist because he is seeing things from a um, from a, a unique perspective essentially. So if you're going to accept that, which I buy, if you're going to accept that, then he would look at something like Stanford, Connecticut, and go, "Oh, we're screwed." We've been screwed for a long time. I've got to do something about this. Um, you know, and he cites different adventures. We get a call back to the Illuminati meeting. But at the end of the day, I really feel for him at the end because of all the things he saw happening, he never saw Cap dying. And I think that's really getting at him. And I think Bendis brings that across nicely. Agreed. <clears throat> and the thing is, I guess uh, Captain America's bullet-riddled corpse being the object in the room to which Tony is talking, that's kind of a reveal. That's the last thing you see in this little mini-story here. And it's kind of a shocking moment, made all the more so if you read this after you finish Civil War, the limited series, but before you read Captain America number 25, mm-hmm. and which is, by the way, that's the order in which I did it, just because I didn't know any better. And 
it, it took a sec for me to, to kind of grok the fact that, yeah, Steve really is dead. And so now what, you know? And, but as it goes for, for Tony's reasoning, I mean, look, Civil War basically is my, it, it was the first major Marvel storyline that I ever read. And so I'm not the guy to ask, you know, well, was this in character or was it not? To me, this is the character and everything he does kind of pivots off of this. So I'm not the guy to, to talk to about that. But I find his reasoning based upon the intellect that we know this character has, his actions line up really nicely. And to me, what that suggests is that there was a tremendous amount of organization that was going on with Civil War behind the scenes long before somebody ever put finger to keyboard to start typing up the first issue, the script for the first issue. Behind the scenes, the creators nailed down who was going to do what and why and to whom. And it when, when it finally comes together as as in my opinion, as flawlessly as it does, the drama and the characterization to me, it all rings true because it all has this very solid foundation to it. And so the pain and the tears that, uh, that Tony's in, uh, near the end of this story, it doesn't feel forced or contrived to me because it, it, whether it was implicit or sometimes explicit, but mostly it was just implied that this is that, Tony isn't thinking in terms of ideals or morality, rights and wrongs. He's not thinking about any of that stuff. He's just thinking in terms of logistics. Who's going to live and who's going to die and who's going to do the job? All of this, I don't know. It's it, it it goes back to how much I really cherish this story that it like I say none of it feels forced. That's what I'm saying. No, it, it, it doesn't. And, and it's kind of funny because you, you say how, you know, longtime readers said that it was out of character and people coming into it who didn't know no better, you know, don't see that. It, it's kind of this weird. Comics are all about your perception. Reading comics as opposed to maybe a television series. Uh, but I guess TV is probably the closest that you can say to this is when you have episodic fiction, how you read it, when you read it, and when you come into it is going to totally shape how you see the how you see these characters forevermore, almost. If you're not familiar with Marvel, and you were pissed off at DC in 2006, and you're like, screw it, I'm going, I'm going over across the street, you wouldn't have any problems with Civil War. Because to you, these are brand new characters. It's your first time meeting them. Oh, this is how they are. Meanwhile, the people that have been around a while are going to have, you know, a different reaction. They're going to be like, you know, Cap doesn't talk like that. Tony doesn't talk like that. They shouldn't be fighting like that. Sight issue here. Sight storyline there. Whereas at the very same time, a bunch of Marvel readers are like, F this. I'm going over to DC. Oh, look, Green Lantern. This is just how Hal Jordan is. You know, it, yeah. it, it's it's so weird that we can get into these nerd fights when really there isn't like a dead set. This is the right answer. You know, it's not like, you know, it is all based on 
you know, where you were when you came into it. So on both of those levels, though, of whether it's in character or whether it's good, I would say this first story is both. Fair enough. Well, the and uh, this may actually be another subject for another time, but, you know, this whole cannibalizing the other guy's audience, it does make me wonder if that's even a factor anymore, considering that, you know, we're in this post-New 52, post-all-new, all-Marvel, whatever it's called, world now. And I don't know that that this whole idea of, I guess, pilfering the other pilfering your competitor's audience if that's even possible to do anymore yeah but that had to have been a factor at least somewhat in some stories being a lot more successful than i think they should have been because if you just read infinite crisis as your introduction to dc comics as as it was back in 2006 it i guess it it might be a a a fairly enjoyable story but I think most people, most longtime DC readers knew what was really going on with Infinite Crisis. Mm-hmm. And I can't I can't really fault those who kind of put that down as their their point of no return. As a matter of fact, it was it, I guess it's only really in, in in retrospect. I was kind of surprised that that wasn't your Rubicon because of the fact that I we can debate amongst ourselves just how much the birthright Superman was ever truly brought into continuity after Superman number 200. I think that's totally up for grabs, but what's not up for grabs is that to whatever degree the burn age Superman was still in continuity or whether he was out of continuity, birthright and man of steel were both gone as of infinite crisis, whatever the last issue was. Mm -hmm. And after that, we're dealing with a different character and, um, I, I'm, I'm not saying this to patronize you. I hope you understand, but I'm actually looking back at it, really surprised that that wasn't your 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 personal breaking moment. You know? Well, not to divert us too much. Uh, I have come to I've made peace with myself that I am just addicted to Superman in general, mm-hmm. and even if I don't like what's going on, I'm still going to collect it because that is what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not define me, but I am defined by it. And I, I, I think when you look at post-Infinite Crisis Superman, the fact that we did not get a hard, okay, this is the burn age, whatever happened to the Man of Steel or the Man of Tomorrow. Uh, though I guess whatever happened to the Man of Steel would have been a more better title for that. Um, because we didn't get that, you know, because there was never a goodbye and because they dragged their fucking feet to get that new origin out there. It was, it was just like, okay, some stuff did happen. Okay. He still died, but how does that work? How does the eradicator work? Because Krypton looks really different. Oh, you're just bringing in the movie stuff because you don't have anything better. Okay. Oh, no, it's not that you don't have anything better. You're just a really big fan of it because it's always better to go backwards than forwards. Oh, it all counts. Okay. You know, it's just like there was just so much stuff going on that. Well, the stuff that doesn't count is Lucy Lane and Ron Troop. That doesn't count because that doesn't work for their story. But otherwise, yeah, yeah, it's all it all counts. Yeah, it all counts. Well, except well, they got married. But uh, oh, and Lex was a businessman. But 
did he grow up with Perry? Does it matter? Who cares? I mean, it was basically whatever whoever was creatively in control of Superman wanted to do with the character. And Jeff Johns worked with Richard Donner. I think that's amazing that he was able to do that. That's cool. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that he was your, and, and from the sounds of it, Richard Donner did him so many solids. It's not even funny. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, you know, especially when his sister died, you know, Donner took care of him in a way that most producers and Hollywood people probably wouldn't have. But if you, you know, say what you will about Man of Steel in terms of what it, you know, what it represented to Superman, Burns said, I want to do something different. He had echoes of the Reeve movies and the George Reeves television series, but he didn't have crystalline Krypton. And as soon as I saw that, while I stuck around... I was just like, okay, you guys don't have better ideas. This is this is a problem. So, but that's a that's a tangent for another time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. Don't get well, Mike talking about Superman because Mike will talk about Superman. <laughs> well, you know what I'll say though is this, and then after that we can get back into it. But I was I've always been a little bit more of an absolutist about it than you are. Maybe I'm just more of a Superman fundamentalist. I don't know. But after Infinite Crisis, what I eventually came to realize, you know, especially after seeing friggin' bearded Jarrell, whatever, um, this character is not the one that I've been collecting since 19 whatever it was when I started, like 1990, I think. Just because I'm just that young, <laughs> wasn't in on the ground floor of it. But this is not the same character. And I'm sorry, I don't care. At that at that time, I did not care to read any other Superman. Least of all, a Christopher Reeve photocopy. And so I just decided, I'm out. And that's a decision that I, I stand by. I feel it was a valid decision for me to make. And I don't really regret it all that much. What I will say, though, is this. The current Superman creators have done the impossible by making me miss the post-Infinite Crisis Superman. <laughs> it's kind of funny, because back then I was like, God, Superman Red, you know, like 2007. I'm like, I miss Superman Red, Superman Blue. <laughs> yeah, and then, you bastards, you, you did it. You, you finally did it. <laughs> they have not made me miss Stephen T. Siegel yet. Well, that's... Uh... But I'm almost there. You know what? I'll, I'll say it. No one else is going to say it, so I'll say it. I would miss Stephen T. Siegel if if anybody except Scott McDaniel had drawn those issues of Superman. But because of the fact that they were drawn by Scott McDaniel and they were written by Stephen T. Siegel, I, <laughs> there's nothing there for me to miss. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and that's not me being disrespectful to Scott McDaniel. To me, he's one of the great artists that has has ever uh, put pencil to paper in comics. The guy does not need to draw Superman. It's it's as simple as that. So, but yeah, to I guess to get back into um, the confession though, we actually get to the proper story called Confession, which oddly enough, this story, such as it is. This story, uh, interlude, scene, whatever you want to call it, 
takes place while, while Captain America is still alive, but chronologically in, in the book, it's actually published in the comic after the story where we just saw him laid out on a slab. So I'm not really sure whose decision that was, but whatever. So anywho, basically this is what I realized now, the last conversation that Steve and Tony ever had with one another. And the thing about it that is maybe a kind of a, a sucker punch, and maybe this is the reason this story was published second in this in this issue is all of Iron Man's comments not well not all of them but a goodly number of Iron Man's comments in this in this little exchange with Steve they're a little bit more triumphalistic you know in the last the last uh, story where it Tony was basically confessing to to Steve's dead body there was nothing triumphalist about what he was saying. He was the the guy's pain. It was almost tangible on the page. And here he's not really spiking the football, but a little bit. He's taking a very different tone of voice. And uh, I don't know. Uh, what What are your thoughts here? I liked Cap in this story. I liked Cap talking to the guard more than anything. I thought that was a, uh, I don't want to say it's charming because it's not that type of party, but you know, it was him kind of just, you know, talking to this kid who, you know, it, it's almost like in a different world, I could have been this kid mm-hmm. being the guard. So, and I do like him going, you know, son, I'm going to be tried for reason, treason and hung. And he's like, they don't hang people anymore. Sure they do. And then Tony shows up and tries to be, you know, try. I don't know what he wants from Steve. I don't know if he wants an apology. And, and, and just Steve doesn't give him that. So, you know... Steve lays out this entire argument about why Tony's was wrong. And, you know, Yins ends it with, was it worth it? Tell me. And Tony's big reaction was, well, your face. (laughs) And, you know, it's just, you know, you're, you're a sore loser, Captain. And that's the last thing he says to him. Yeah. I mean, that would be like you and I having a disagreement and me going, you know, Magnus, I hope you die in a fire. And then two days later, I'm reading a Facebook post about how you died in a fire. I'm going to feel like shit. Now, I'm not coming to Texas to talk to your dead body uh, just because, you know, well, maybe I would. I don't know. But still, (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, that is where... I think Bendis is one of the best emotional writers out there right now. I think at the end of the day, he understands human dynamic and how to put that on paper better than most. I don't think he should be in charge of the big picture things. Mm -hmm. But if you want a story, if your aim is to read a story where two people are talking about something, man, he's he's fantastic at that. Yeah, he's the go-to guy, yeah. And 
that's why I like this because this isn't the main book. This is the afterward. If you, it's one of the things that I think Marvel did so much better than DC is because their events. Yes. Again, they were cash grabs. And I say it again, you had a choice. You didn't have to read this. You didn't have to buy this comic. And if you have Marvel unlimited, you can read the entire thing and not have to pay for it outside of your subscription. So congratulations. Cause that's how I read this. I have this issue somewhere. No, I sold this. Sorry. Uh, but I, you know, if I ever really want to read civil war again, I can do it digitally and on my own terms, basically. But back then when I did buy this off the stands, I bought it because it sounded like an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Civil war had intrigued me enough that I wanted to read other takes on it. And I think that's why this book is so good. Uh, the art in the second chapter is much better than the first. Uh, I don't yes. know how that is. Because um, do they have separate artists? or No, these are, I... I think these are separate guys. Aren't they? Uh, and, that's, and I think mainly one of my biggest problems is that in the first thing, you had Alex Maleev trying to do big, huge, epic things. And as we've discussed in the past... That's not his bag. You know, him drawing this massive two-page spread of Doom and Iron Man fighting over the forces of King Arthur, it just didn't work for me as well from him. But the heart of this, of both of these stories, and especially the second one, just shines through. And I kind of liked that we had Tony's thing and then we get the second part of it, which was um, Steve, you know, kind of yelling at Tony because then you have this retroactive gut punch that you realized why he's so upset in the first story. I thought it worked great. Agreed. Actually, it looks like Alex Maleev actually drew both. The difference is that he colored the first one himself, whereas Jose Villarubia colored the second one. And it's, Again, it's it's one of those testaments how much difference a colorist can really make. Mm -hmm. Because the 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 story that Alex Maleev colored, it's just got this grimier, grittier, I don't know, more worn out uh, type of uh, style to it. Whereas the the one that was drawn by what's his name, Rubi Villa Rubia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jose Villa Rubia, that's a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to say watercolor exactly, but there's a it, it defies it defies words, I guess. But there's a style to it that it's just not what Alex Maleev would have done, and that doesn't make it worse, and it doesn't make it better. It just makes it different. That's all. And. But it's amazing. Again, you know, the amount of the amount of control, or I guess the amount of difference, a colorist can make in in a comic. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just it's not as muddy, I guess, is the best thing, and I think that allows the art to come through a little stronger. And maybe that's just how Malie wants to color his own work. He wants it to be muddy. I am. I like the clean I, line. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a clean line. It's why the artist, uh, fortunately, the name escapes me, on, on Ms. Marvel was so great because it was so clean. It was so on point. And it just gets me more. And it's not that I, you know, because art, art is so 
purely subjective. Um, like, I, I can't even describe how much I hate, well, not hate, how I am uncomfortable talking about comic book art. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, unless you're looking at it from a technical perspective, i.e. you're looking at it from, you know, um, from like, well, how is the perspective? How is this? At the end of the day, every artist, uh, the, the one thing I ever, uh, the one thing I read about art that I completely and utterly agree with is this. Your style is everything you do wrong. Hmm. And there's a truth to that. You know, every, everybody, you know, and what you like is based on your personal taste. So when people say Rob Liefeld sucks, it's like, okay, are you talking technically or you just don't like his style? Because it's two different conversations there. Because technically, you're right. Man can't draw feet. Man has problems with perspective. Yes. But do you like it? You know, some people like pictures of, of, you know, there was a joke in a second season episode of Lois and Clark where Lois is like, I bet you, you know, they're at an art gallery and Lois is like, I bet you guys like those uh, pictures of dogs playing poker. In oh, Paris. I love like, those. Oh, yeah. You know, some people like that. You know, it's it's one of the one of the funniest parts of uh, of uh, Hudson Hawk. It's just like, I don't know what's art, but I, lo- I know what I like. And Hudson Hawk looks on the wall and it's dogs playing poker. And it's just like, OK, that's what he likes. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of informs your opinion on his his taste in this. So it's, it's like, you know, I, I hate getting into the nitty gritty of art because one, I don't do it. So I feel uncomfortable talking about it. You know, I could talk about story all day long because I think I got a handle on that. Uh, but you know, this second one got the, what I can say about the art in this comic is that for whatever reason, and I guess it's the coloring, the art in the second story got me more than the art in the first story. Agreed. And I guess from a a writing standpoint, I was on board with pretty much every single page of this thing except one. And this sort of leads into, I guess, one of the – call it a quibble, but this is one of the problems that I've got with a lot of the way that Captain America has been done in comics – and it's this – it's almost like he's a politician, you know, this speechifying that he, that he's prone to do. And there are times when that's used to, I think, very, very powerful effect. You know, that kind of famous uh, soliloquy that he gives in Amazing Spider – I forget the issue, but Amazing Spider-Man. And he kind of caps it off by saying, you know, it doesn't matter what the press say. It doesn't matter what the mobs say, what the politicians – you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there are times when he can – you know, I, I guess wax philosophical and it's not annoying. But here, it I guess this was just one campaign speech too many. I get that Captain America is a guy who stands ultimately not on intellect, but on principle. You know, he's a guy who's, for a lot of people, he's the embodiment of the American dream. And the reason for that is because Fuck it, he's up to the task, you know. But sometimes his little speeches are a little too flowery, and that 
that bit of business, like the next to last page where, you know, he gets in Tony's grill and basically says, you know, well, was it worth it? Tell me the entire speech that he gives up to then. I mean, it, I don't know. Maybe it was just, it was one speech too many. I don't know, but it's not that it's not good. It's just it, at this point, it, it had been kind of done to death, you know, uh, Steve just running his mouth and I don't know. So it, it's sometimes it, it's kind of hard to separate when something is done badly versus when something is done well, but just done too often, you know? Yeah. And I think this falls into that second category. Yeah. Because, you know, I think cap at the end of the day, should kind of be like Silent Bob. He doesn't say much, but when he says it, it has impact. And when you have speechifying again and again and again, it loses that impact. And it's one of those things where out of context, you can use it to justify anything you do. I mean, <laughs> I mean that, that, that whole you move, you know, no you move speech, which is brilliant could be used on any side of the political spectrum. So it's also one of those things. So it's like one of those things where after a while, what he's saying doesn't have as much impact anymore because it can be applied to just about anything. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. Um, there's a political issue actually. I, where I, I saw both sides using that in the geek community because <laughs> It split the the geek community. If you want to, we can go into it off mic. I refuse to say it on mic, but um, yeah, I saw both sides either quoting Captain America or else using that exact panel. And I yeah, and the thing is, it's so generic that it could go either way. So I totally agree with you. Yes, but here, you know, here I didn't mind it as much because this was the point of the issue mm -hmm. was to get both of their confessions supposedly. And Tony's was going to be completely different from Steve's. So, and it was a good way to get four bucks out of a comic fan. Yes, indeed. And I can't quite shake the suspicion. Maybe that was the real, but no, I don't want to be so cynical. Hey, gotta... Even if it was, as long as it's at the end of the day, whether or not something's done simply to get money out of person, if it's done well, then you, then your value is there. Right. Well, my view of it is this is, I guess, in the Magnus reading order of Civil War, I think this was actually published before Captain America 25. I nevertheless recommend reading this after you read Captain America number 25 because that – it puts a different spin on the way that you read this issue mm -hmm. with Captain America 25 in the background. So that's my recommendation. Well, what? For some reason, and I don't know why this is, if you go to the Marvel app mm -hmm. and you uh, put in order, because you can you can read the books in order essentially through a through an event, so it gives you kind of a reading order to go through. Every once in a while, there is a glitch that actually puts the confession first. That's a hell of a wait. Wait, you mean first of all of Civil War? Yes. Like, there's a glitch where it's before the Amazing Spider-Man stories and the Fantastic Four stories that lead into it. Wow, that's a hell of a way to read this. To read. So, 
to that, I say, wow, I'm glad they seem to have gotten it fixed because I'm looking at it now and it's right. <laughs> okay, wow. Yeah, me too. That's That gives a little too much away from the outset, you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, do you have any any closing thoughts about uh, the confession or for that matter, anything that we've talked about? No, I, I think uh, I think by looking at these two stories specifically, uh, we're getting a really good handle on Steve and Tony's role in um, in the Civil War event. And I think because of that, you know, it, it kind of it, it, the thing that all of these tie-in issues have done for me mm-hmm. is it, it it has made the original better because I when I go back and read the original with all this is all in my head so it, it reads better than it did just on its own okay fair enough um, the only other thing, and this I, I am kind of springing on you, so I probably should have warned you about it in advance, so I apologize. But um, I guess as far as the movie Civil War, are you up for the game or what? I mean, how do you think it's going to play out, especially as compared to the comic? I mean, do you think this is going to be an adaptation? No, and, and given the trailer that just got released, I don't think it's going to be an adaptation at all. Neither I think do I, but I have to ask it in that way. So. No, no, I understand that. No, I think it's going to. I think it's going to take themes from Civil War, but it's going to be. It's totally its own animal because, really, what I think the Captain America Civil War, the film, is going to be, is the Captain series, where Steve Rogers is told, "Hey, you've got a." you've got to give up being Captain America or you, you work for us is going to go into the back room and have kind of a affair with civil war. And we're going to get an amalgamation of the two. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that creeps anybody out, but, uh, and, and if it does, I apologize, but I think that's where we are. I need an adult. I need an adult. Um, no, it's, I kind of figured that the uh, first off, there's no way, considering you know the the way that film rights are distributed right now, there's no way to adapt Civil War as a comic, more or less as a comic, and then put that into a film. Mm-hmm. It's it you just you cannot have the X Men in this story, and they're not a huge part of the story, but that's not the point. They can't be in this in this movie. Uh, the Fantastic Four are a major part of the Civil War comic, and they cannot be in the movie. You know, on and on and on. And so I, I guess I, I knew intellectually that the, that the movie wasn't going to be about as literal an adaptation of the story as you could hope for from the comic. It wasn't going to be that. But even so, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I was a little – I was a little disappointed based on, you know, what we had seen with uh, the trailer that it it it, they, it looks like they're taking the basic conflict but they're going in there very much in their own direction with it and it looks like it's going to be predominantly a Captain America and Iron Man story. Mhm. And on the one hand, I mean there's honesty in that because they really are the the two drivers of 
of uh, Civil War in the comics, but I don't know. It's I guess what I was hoping for was that Civil War would be Avengers 3, and it would be a little bit more all-encompassing of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that just doesn't look like it's going to be happening. And on the one hand, yes, that is a little bit disappointing because, you know, I love this story so much. I wanted the big screen adaptation to be as close as possible considering the logistical impossibilities that they're facing. But on the other hand, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is ultimately its own Marvel Universe, and they've got to do what's best for that universe. And so I, I it, it, it doesn't seem right to... I don't know, throw too big a fit over it. So, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to see it, but I'm not going to lie. The uh, There is a little bit of disappointment, tempered by the fact that, yes, Spider-Man is going to be in the movie, and that means a lot. Mm-hmm. So, so, that is pretty much it, I think, for us this week. Now, before we say our final you know, goodbyes and everything. Um, Bailey, you host quite a few other shows and uh, people need to be listening to those. So where exactly is it that people can find you? Uh, Views from the Long Box, which can be found at viewsfromthelongbox.com. I talk about comics and sometimes Star Wars. Mm. Uh, I may or may not have something lined up for Civil War. It just depends on how life goes for me. Uh, so I have From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I do with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found over at fortressofbailytude.com. Uh, and the Superman homepage. We uh, we were looking at the post-crisis Superman. By the time this episode has aired, we are well past our 200th episode, uh, which we should be farther along, but whatever. Uh, and we should be probably ending the death of Clark Kent around this time period. Mm. Uh, so and, and then heading into the trial of Superman, which is going to be interesting because I haven't read that since it came out. The... Um, you also have I'm on shows on the Two True Freaks Network. Uh, I'm not any current, uh, but I have been on Back to the Bins. I've been on Comics Monthly Monday, Tales of the JSA, stuff like that. There's Bailey's Batman podcast. And every Tuesday night, you can go over to the Superman homepage at 1030 Eastern Standard Time and listen to Steve Eunice and I talk about Superman live, uh, which is always kind of a fun thing to do. Uh, and that's Radio KO Live. So that's about the shortest way i can do that <laughs> well badass you know what we need to do is just come up with a uh recording of you just saying all of that that way you don't have to say it every time because man there's you do quite a lot you're a very busy man yep i uh, hope to be busier soon <laughs> you and me both well well that's pretty much it for us this week now as to next week uh what basically what i'm going to be doing is finishing off the brother fights brother miniseries i'm going to be talking about Civil War X-Men number 1 through 4 and then Wolverine number 42 to 48 and at least when it comes to the Wolverine issues I'm going to have a little something something to say about I guess the way that these scandals tend to unfold in real life and so I don't know if it sounds like I've already recorded that episode it's probably just a trick of the audio pay no attention to it so I think that's pretty much it for me so bye everybody I will see you next week
Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is, and we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And... You know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like season two of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman, the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailitude.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I've been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners 
and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.